強がりの裏側に弱さを隠してた逃げないよこれからはもう一度あの空へ作り上げても壊してまた作って何百回も上げれなげんでも負けるた Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are back on our Gundam bullshit with Gundam Build Fighters,、uh, the first anime to go into the real world of Gundam with a Gundam sports anime. And it is a blast, and that'll be our topic this week and on、uh, Weekly Suit Gundam. And I'm very excited for that. We'll have a couple of little, little other odds and ends for you at the top of the show in case you are not a Gundam listener. But you really should be, because if you're not, then you don't get to enjoy stuff like Gundam Build Fighters, and I'm sad for you. Yeah, it's, it is a great show. I'm extremely excited to, to do the podcast today and get into it. Yeah, me too. So, a couple other pieces of stuff before we get into all of that. We've got a little bit of news. The news mainly is we want to talk about the Spider Man trailer because it was cool and we like Spider Man.、Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll talk about all of that.、Uh, one thing that is different today that means absolutely nothing to the listeners because this is not a video podcast, but this is the first podcast we're recording where I am not wearing my glasses.、Uh, I've been wearing glasses for about 20 years and I'm recording the podcast today with contact lenses in. Because I started my new semester at the University of Iowa, and、uh, because this is a Republican run state, they cannot legally mandate masks or vaccines or anything that would help、uh, prevent COVID 19 because the Republican Party is pro COVID.、Um, but most people are wearing masks and stuff anyway, obviously, because, you know, it's, it's a responsible、yeah. thing to do in this setting right now.、Um, and I have been given it the old college try. For nigh on two years now, and I'm sorry, I know some people can do it. I can't do a mask and glasses at the same time. I can't. It just doesn't work. It's a fucking nightmare. I hate it. It makes me want to die.、Um, I cannot. I am in a Japanese class, for instance, and I just, with the way that classroom is set up, I cannot get in a position where, and I've tried so many different masks and so many different ways of doing this, I cannot get in a position where I can comfortably have my glasses on and see the board and be able to like, participate in the class. So I went to the eye doctor this week.、Um, I found the world's most annoying eye doctor on accident because I was in the waiting room and I had an appointment at 11. And they didn't let me in until like 11 40. And I'm like, I wonder what was going on. It's because he talked nonstop about shit that had nothing to do with your eyes. Um, including getting on a long tangent. Like, for, first off, when he asked me what I, was, what I did, I'm like, I'm a student at the university. He's like, What do you study? I'm like, Well, I'm a PhD in film studies. And he's like, And then he's like, Oh, film. So he went off about how much he loves Star Wars for like 10 minutes、um, while not doing anything with my eyes. To be fair, Star Wars is a very good movie. It is, but not the way he was talking about it. Just <laughs> shut the fuck up. And then, and then after that,、um, I don't even know what prompted this. I didn't prompt it because I said nothing through most of this appointment, other than, like, I think he asked me once, How long have you been wearing glasses? And I said, Since I was 10. And that was about all I said. And then at some point, he went off about how much he hates all the politicians and how the Republicans and the Democrats are both equally bad in the exact same way. 
and he's a moderate and he's proud of that because you know everything there's a middle solution to everything gosh darn it and I had just been, before I got into the uh, eye exam, been reading about all the people in Texas dying because they're eating the horse dewormer medicine uh -huh. that Fox News is telling them to take. And it, Sean, it took every ounce of self-restraint I had to say, yeah, but the Democrats aren't telling people to ingest horse dewormer. Um, so, yeah. But he did get me my contact lens prescription, and so I am giving those a try. I am on my third day. They have you kind of ease into it and do them for a certain number of hours every day. So I put these in right before the podcast because I don't know how long these podcasts go sometimes. So I don't want to have to like stop in the middle and take my contacts out. But I do want to have them in so my eyes... Mostly it's just, it's a very new sensation for your eyes to get used to. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's that's my life right now, is getting used to these things so I can... I can just be on campus and wear a mask and not have to worry about my glasses fogging up or falling off or any of that shit because I can't do it. I can't. And and apparently we've just decided we're doing the pandemic forever because we're not doing vaccine mandates. We're not doing anything to try to end this. We're just, this is forever now. Fuck it. No leadership. We're done. I hate everything. But hey, you got contact lenses now. It's kind of cool. It's, uh, it's, I don't know if it's ever going to be my preferred way of... Like seeing, I do like glasses. I've worn them for a long time, but um, it is kind of neat to be walking around with like nothing on my face and like be able to see without like a border around my sight. It is kind of surreal. Yeah, it's it's weird because I have you know I've never seen you without glasses on for an extended period of time. Because yeah, I've obviously seen you like <laughs> you've taken them off for like oh you're, you need to clean your glasses or something like that, but never for like, this has been we've been recording for five minutes and you haven't had any glasses on. It's like this is weird. Sorry. It's like when my dad <laughs> shaved his beard when I was a kid and I didn't recognize him because he had a beard for his entire life. And I was like, who even are you? Are you even my father? Has some strange man invaded my home? It's like, it's just you get used to the way that certain people look and then it is. they don't have the thing on their face anymore. You're like, for all I know, you're like some random stranger that I'm recording a podcast with. I have no well, idea. it is weird because I remember a time before I wore glasses, but that time was when I was like a single digit age, like nine. Because, like, uh -huh. I think I got them when I was 10. So, like, nobody I know other than my family remembers a time when I didn't wear glasses. So, it's very weird. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm giving it a try. We'll see if it works. Uh, I was a little scared off of contacts for much of my life because my dad had the worst vision of anyone I've ever met who wasn't, like, legally blind. Um, and, like, he had trifocals. His eyes were so bad. And he had mm -hmm. contacts that did some of the same stuff. And they were these, I mean, back in that time, we didn't have, like, the daily contacts or anything like that. Yeah. But he had especially big glass contacts he'd put in and out and have to be very careful with. And it always seemed like the biggest hassle in the world. Now they have these daily ones that are just these very, very small, thin pieces of plastic that you open up every day and, and put them in. And I was, like, I was actually pretty amazed to, like, when I researched this, I'm like, oh, it's a lot easier now. Like, because with glasses, technology stopped hundreds of years ago. <laughs> Right? Yeah, they're like, hey, let's just put, let's make these lenses and figure out how they refract light, and then let's just stick them in some frames. And it's like, at a certain point, unless we invent, like, super glass, there's really nowhere for glasses to go as a technology. That's why they're always trying to upsell you at the glasses store on, like, the stupid, like, computer, like, coating that they put on to, like, block uh -huh. the different light. And it's, like, does nothing and costs a lot. And it's, like, it's because they're just desperately trying to figure out, well, how do we improve on this technology that just, it reached its pinnacle hundreds of years ago. Yeah. So, anyway, that's my fun adventure. Um, yeah, other than that, uh, I do have one other thing to talk about. But, Sean, first I want to hear if you have any stuff. 
well, you had a fun adventure, Jonathan, and I also had... Uh, fun is not probably the word I would use. I mean, it doesn't sound like your adventure was particularly fun. No, it, was, it wasn't. It's interesting to get contact lenses. Um, yesterday, I got a, a text from my mom saying, hey, could, could we talk for a second? It's some classic your older brother stuff, basically. And I went and I was like, okay, what did my older brother do now? Because my older brother is... I love him, but he gets into weird hijinks constantly, and then I always have to somehow clean up the messes he makes. Um, and this time was a particularly interesting one. And to be fair to him, this was not really his fault, but it was like a whole incident where he and uh, his wife, my sister-in-law, were in uh, New Braunfels, Texas, uh, which is about three hours west of where I live. Uh, and they were doing like a whole water park-like rafting thing in a river over there. And apparently about like 15 minutes into them on the, the going on this like raft down a river, um, his sister-in-law or my sister-in-law, his wife dropped uh, like a whole a sequence of events that I'm not entirely sure how it happened. But it ended up with uh, her bag that had their car fob and her phone and her wallet ending up in the <laughs> river. And then also through a sequence of events, that bag being opened up and thus like spilling all the contents of it into the river, thus making it impossible to find any of that stuff. Because if the bag had been sealed, they maybe could have gotten the bag because it was designed to float, but it ended up opening up. And so <laughs> somewhere in some river in New Braunfels, there's a, a car fob, you know, because it's not a car key because cars don't have keys anymore. They have dumb little digital fobs that are a stupid, useless piece of technology that is like way worse than having a key. Um, and then a wallet and all that shit is deposited at the bottom of that riverbank. So at two, around 2 p.m. yesterday, um, we got a call from my brother because he still had his phone saying they couldn't get into their car because they don't have the car fob. And if you have a modern car with a car fob, you can't, like, get a locksmith or whatever to right. get you into your car and, like, get the car on, like a classic car. Um, I've thought this for years. My I've yeah. seen, like, like my brother and my mom both have cars with the car fobs. And I, I fucking, I never want that because I like having a key where a locksmith, in the worst case scenario, could come make me a new fucking key. It's so weird that we decided, like, keys are a fine technology. They do not need updating. It's so weird to me. Yeah, it's it is it's like the car version of what we did with video game consoles, uh, which they kind of have gone back on it because they realized it was fucking stupid. Where they had we had all the capacitive touch buttons for like two yes. generations there, and it was just like this is horseshit. Like why why not just have a physical button you can press, and I can be like confident that I have pressed this button in, and I am like physically changing a circuit that isn't turning on the console rather than like a vague sensor that i'm trying to press in the same way that you put a key in a fucking car thing and then it completes a circuit and then you can turn the fucking thing and then it physically you are turning the engine on um so you can't do that with modern cars um so they were stuck uh again three hours away from where we were with no access to their car um and all kinds of shenanigans so basically the the best solution we could come up with because you can't really get a new one of those fobs easily like it it costs like a couple hundred dollars and it's like a whole long process so you can't just get the dealership to bring out a new fob or anything like that to you um certainly not on like an emergency basis so the best solution was my mom and i drove a six hour round trip three hours there three hours back um well actually it was technically i guess seven hours total because it's about a one hour drive to get to houston which is more or less directly south of where we are because that's where my brother's house is to get into his house 
Uh, we also didn't have a key to get into his house. There was supposed to be a key to get into his house, like hidden around the house, you know, the way that some people do so that you can get in if you've lost your key. But they also, they were in New Braunfels for a couple of days of like a little like weekend vacation kind of thing. And so they had a woman who's coming around to like feed their cats. And apparently that woman who was feeding the cats took the key home because she didn't think that anyone else would need the key and like kept it in her pocket rather than putting it back in the hiding space around the home because she's going to go there a couple of times over the course of like three days. Um, so that key was not there. So we did need to get a locksmith to go to their house to go in so that he could like open up the garage door so we could get into their home to get one fucking car fob, get back into the car, drive three hours to New Braunfels, say, here's your fucking car keys and then drive three hours back um, and so we left at about two o'clock and then I got home about 11 o'clock, um, Saturday night yesterday from recording this podcast. And that was, that was basically how I spent almost my entire Saturday was just delivering one fucking little piece of plastic with some buttons on it that allows you to get into a goddamn car. Um, it was very ridiculous. Well, Sean's brother, I, I hope this teaches you the lesson. Going outside is never good. Just stay home and watch Gundam. Yeah, exactly. Like, stay away from, like, moving bodies of water. Um, Stay away from anything that you might lose something inside of. Or, like, you know, make sure you have, like, I don't know, just get, like, the, like, fob thing that detects you're, like, the owner of the car and lets you turn it on and open it and all that shit. Like, just embed it into your skin somewhere, because that just feels like that's the solution we need to go to if this is the stupid world we're now in with the way these fobs work. Is just, like, just, just, like, put it in your brain or something and so it just knows that it's you, because the, the <laughs> I, like, the fact that that was the easiest way to solve this problem was to get someone to drive for three hours to bring the thing to you. Um, and that there was no easier way to solve that problem in the way that with a traditional car, it would have been, you know, it would have been expensive and it would have been annoying, but there would be a way to solve that problem. Especially like if we had never moved to Texas or like if, you know, if they were like way further away in some, you know, in the middle of nowhere, like, you know, somewhere that it was not a possible to drive the like extra car key to them in a day. Um, I don't know how you would solve that problem. Like, it seems utterly ridiculous. That's great. I'm sorry I've been laughing, but it is an objectively funny uh, scenario you're outlining here. To me, at least. If you have to do it, maybe not. But for me, it's funny. You know, it's, it's hey, I've never been, uh, like, much west, uh, like, of where we are in Texas. So it was, I got to see, it turns out that three hours west of where we live in Texas kind of looks exactly where we are. Uh, it was, you know, I got to know, it's like, hey, New Braunfels, it just sort of looks almost exactly where we live. Because Texas is a big state that doesn't have, like, you know, it's got a couple of different, like, kind of biomes or whatever in there uh but you gotta drive further than three hours out to see something that looks different than than where we are nice well my other big adventure this week is um i started my new semester so i'm teaching multiple classes they're going great i have really good groups of students and the one that is of interest to this podcast is my giant robots on film series started this mm -hmm. week had 60 people in the room uh nice. somewhere between 60 and 70 because that's the enrollment in the class and I, I have actually not gone through the attendance list and seen how many were there, but I did a like, head count, and it looked like about at least 60 
before I started, and then some people trickled in late. Um, and we started with Pacific Rim. As I've told you guys, that was the first film on our schedule. And it went over very well. That movie's a crowd pleaser. Had a really good discussion afterwards. Very lively group. And uh, it was fun. The sound in that room is great. So I like put on the 7.1 mix for that movie, and it sounded like you were in a theater. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, and that movie's just a lot of fun. It's mm -hmm. not a perfect movie by any means. Um, I wish it had more giant robot stuff in it. It's actually, you kind of forget that, like, there really isn't a good, like, fight until, like, 80 minutes into the movie. Um, and, like, my favorite shot in that whole movie is when the Jaeger is just coming down the street in Hong Kong dragging a fucking cruiser line ship behind yes. it. That is, like, that is the moment I, like, most distinctly remember from that film as being, that's, like, the coolest thing that has happened in an American giant robot yes. movie easily. Well, because it's doing that, and then that's also when, like, the Tom Morello lick on the mm -hmm. on the score comes in. Because that movie has a killer score. Uh -huh. by uh, It's performed, the guitars by Tom Morello, but it's done by Raman Jawadi, who then he was on Game of Thrones for years. I wish he did more movie stuff. He's so good. Um, but, yeah, that moment is, like, the most, like, this movie gets it. And I wish there was a little bit more of that in there, although there's lots and lots of cool stuff. I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro. The production design and the colors and cinematography is fantastic. Top to bottom, it's got really fun characters. The biggest flaw with that movie when you watch it today is it's just abundantly clear that in his heart of hearts, Guillermo wanted the Japanese woman, played by Rinko Kikuchi, Mako, to be the main character. Right, and she yeah. can't be because it's an American movie, so you have boring Charlie Hunnam as, like, the boring white guy lead, and he's fine. But, like, Mako is the one who actually kind of, like, has, like, a backstory and stuff that matters. Mm -hmm. And it is a little distracting. Like, all my students noticed that, too, and it was kind of funny. But we had fun, and that's just the warm-up movie. Next week, we are starting with the entire Gundam trilogy, and this is the one I am most excited and nervous about because... If it goes over well, it goes over well for three weeks. If it doesn't go over well, it doesn't go over well for three weeks. Um, but I'm locked in. I'm going to make it go over well. Yeah, I'm very excited that you're going to be able to show those movies to about 60, 18-year-olds. <laughs> it's very yeah. funny to me in the best way possible. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be cool. I, I think they seem like a pretty open-minded group with this kind of stuff. A lot of them do not have history with anime. So I'm like, well, we're going to throw you... Not quite in the deep end. I don't think Gundam is the, the deep end of anime. I, I'm not showing them... There there are way deeper ends of anime you could be thrown into yes. than Gundam, let me tell you. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a little bit of the deeper end historically, because it does not yeah. like look like, obviously, anime they've probably seen. Um, it looks better. But anyway, we'll... Uh, well, I, I will update you on that. I am very, very excited. Which also, by the way, this whole thing means that we have, like, flyers that an intern had to make posted up around the building with stuff like the Super Dimension Fortress Macross Do You Remember Love written on it. Um, Great. And I have been submitting to the official University of Iowa events calendar. So, like, it's on, like, the website and it, like, shows up on the TVs throughout the buildings, like, on today's events. Stuff like, you know, Mobile Suit Gundam 2, Soldiers of Sorrow with the poster and everything. So, again, this this podcast somehow affecting one of the biggest universities in America is a, is a fun legacy, I think. Yeah, I hope the way that this plays out is it's just, you know, it just turns into its own kind of movie where the, like president of the institution or something doesn't realize you're running this class and then he sees these posters like we can't this is a respected learning institution we can't be showing the animes like he sees the gal geiger or whatever fucking you know super <laughs> sentai movie go like, we can't 
yeah, we can't show this in this institution. And they, he, like, shuts down the class, and then you're really depressed. But then, like, a group of the kids goes out, and they, like, protest or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> we want to watch Mecha. We want to watch Mecha. No, and, the way that and, ends is they all dress up like Super Sentai and do, like, yes. the moves in front of, like, the president's office. And he is so moved by the choreography, he decides to come watch the movies with us. Yes, um, and it's, yeah, and then he comes and watches the movies, and then you go, um, and, like, you're about to, like, shake the president's hand, but you can't quite do it, and then the student who's the main character of the movie comes over, and he, like, makes you clasp your hands together, and then a title card pops up that says, you know, between the mind and the heart, or the mind and the hand, there must always be the heart, and then Finn comes up on the screen, and it's over. This is the most in-depth reference to Metropolis we are ever going to get on this podcast. But it's so good. I was, for a second, I was unsure. I'm like, is he doing a Metropolis reference? And then you made it explicit and it was yes. great. All right. Well, I will keep you guys updated on this because it is a fun experiment we are doing and uh, I'm loving it. Sean, you want to do some news? Before we get to the news, Jonathan, I do have one other piece of stuff because okay. I, have, uh, I have been playing uh, Returnal very actively. Oh, okay. And by that, I mean I have beaten Returnal. Um, yeah, that I just want to do a quick update on that because I think most of my thoughts really are kind of covered in the last podcast because it's a roguelike so it's not like the game changes like, dramatically it's more just to kind of get better at it but I will say that I really liked uh, Returnal a hell of a lot um, I think it is I think it's a game that I think was kind of a little bit I feel misrepresented by some of the discourse around it because I, while the thing of if people were following the game when it came out, I think a lot of the talk about the game focused on the fact that you can't save mid-run, which I think is a mistake. Like, the runs in the game are fairly on the long side. Like, a finishing, like if you finish the game in a run, it's probably somewhere between 90 minutes to two hours long, which is a long run um, to go through, and it would be nice to be able to do a sort of, like, temporary save that you can pause it and walk away from the game, do something else, and not be worried about it shutting down or something, or, you know boot something else on your ps5 um like i do think that that is sucks that they don't have that in the game but i think a lot of the conversation around the game paints the game as being a lot like more difficult and like sadistic in its design than it is because returnal is a game that i feel like really wants you to be able to beat it because i beat the game in like i think 11 hours is what the playtime clock ultimately was and by beat i obviously mean like just beat the final boss like you could play it a lot more and find other secrets and and do other stuff because it's a roguelike you could play it infinitely if you wanted to um but it is a game that like has so many things built into it to make it easy for you to progress and so when you go past the point that you were previously they constantly are giving you ways to get kind of shortcuts to get back up to where you were on that previous run. Um, and it, it's really kind of a like very nice feeling roguelike to me where, for instance, you only ever have to, in like a run where you beat the game, you only have to play through two areas of the game because you, the game is six areas total, but it's kind of split in the middle. So it's kind of two acts. So you play through areas one, two, three, when you beat the second area of the game, you never have to go back there unless you want to go there to find like random artifacts and stuff that might level up your character or power them up a little bit. But you get a shortcut to area three the first time you get there. So you can just play through area one, get whatever you want there, um, or you could skip most of area one if you wanted to and just kind of book line to the shortcut. 
Because um, you never have to fight a boss for a second time either unless you want to to get some extra resources on that run. So you can just go from area one to area three. There's an a item you get at the beginning of every area of the game that kind of levels up your character's weapon to whatever the like kind of normal level is for that area. So you don't have to grind a lot to get your like weapon skills up and stuff like that. And so it's a game that really wants you to beat it. And then once you beat area three, then you go to act two, which is areas four, five, six. And it has a similar structure where area five, once you beat it once, you don't have to go there because you get a shortcut to area six. And so I think it's a game that I would, I think it feels like, because I kind of, this happened to me, I think it kind of scared people away a little bit, the way it got talked about around the launch. And I think it is a way nicer roguelike than any roguelike I've ever played. Like, I think it was like a very just sort of fun experience of feeling like every time I did a run, generally, I unless I died very early, I got further than where I was before and unlocked some sort of permanent upgrade or something that then made the subsequent runs easier. Um, so it is a it is a really interesting game in its overall design because it is while it, it like on the outset may seem kind of harsh it actually very much i think is kind of rooting for the player to see it all the way to through to the end and that's a very nice change of pace for most roguelikes i've played which are way more brutal and way more like you gotta put in some serious time and energy and effort if you want to like get all the way to the last boss and returnals um is not quite like that and and so i would definitely recommend it more on a sale because it isn't a super super long game um and 70 dollars is a pretty steep asking price for it but if you can get it for 40 or 50 bucks uh like returnal is a pretty pretty big recommend for me for this year awesome and and yeah that sounds cool to me because i would describe something like hades as also a roguelike that very much wants you to finish it but hades is still a traditional roguelike in that there's nothing you skip you still have to fight the bosses every time you still have to go through all the areas. There's there's no skipping or shortcuts. Returnal doing that, like, honestly moves it a little bit away from a lot of the mm -hmm. roguelike structure. So, and yeah, I hadn't heard much of that at all. I had no idea until you said it that, like, there were shortcuts and things like that. I just assumed the way people were talking about it that you must be doing seven-hour runs or something. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons why that, so, like, talk about that stuff dominated the early game. And I think that's why the, like, people maybe thought that that, not being able to save thing was a bigger problem than it actually is because the first time you're playing through it you might think like oh god if it takes me like an hour to beat the first level how long is it going to take me if this game has six levels in it because i googled that how long is it possibly going to take me is it going to be a fucking eight hour run to beat this game and if you don't play it enough to see that full arc of oh no you get some permanent upgrades that in a metroid like way allow you to like access areas you couldn't before that allows you to get to level three from level one and stuff like that it's like I had that feeling of intimidation of like oh god like how long is this game going to beat if I have to beat these bosses every single time and no it is it is a very kind of pleasant game to play in that sense and I think it makes it way less demoralizing than other roguelikes I've played when you die because it feels like okay I died and it sucks I would have loved to have been able to like finish that boss on this run or something but now I know better what I'm doing and I know how to get back to where I was and I can do it faster and better um, and so it's it's a way more encouraging game in that sense than other roguelikes I've engaged with. It honestly sounds kind of Souls-like in that in mm -hmm. that way. Um, yeah, it's a bit more in that kind of vein, I think, in terms of how it feels as a player. Yeah, interesting. I am I'm excited to check that out if I if it goes on sale again. I, I it's definitely one I wanted to try. I just haven't. The biggest thing turning me off on it was the seventy dollars, which 
is ridiculous for most games. That one seems a little a little out there for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's fine. I am actually playing a game, too, I wanted to mention. I've obviously been high on my Genshin Impact bullshit. Oh, yeah. But they did update this week Horizon Zero Dawn on the PlayStation 5 to 60 FPS. So it's still a PS4 version. Nothing else has changed, but they did unlock the frame rate up to 60 um, finally, it was like one of the last holdouts. That and Bloodborne. We need our Bloodborne patch. Come on, guys. Um, and uh, and I had said for a long time that I will play Horizon once it's at 60 because I just can't. I can't turn on my PS5 and see 30 FPS because everything is 60. So, like, anything that's not is just weird to me now. Um, but they did it. And so I have started playing Horizon Zero Dawn. I am up through the part where you become the Seeker officially. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm about to go out and explore the the bigger world. So I haven't played a ton. That's what four or five hours of the game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a cool game, Sean. There's definitely a couple of pieces of you know this is a game that came out I believe like the same day as Zelda Breath of the Wild. Like, yeah, it was either that or like they were like a week or something apart. Yeah, right. And there's definitely a couple of things where you're like, okay, this is clearly a pre Breath of the Wild game because there's stuff like climbing is annoying because it's like Uncharted mm-hmm. style climbing, but it's in a non linear game. And it's this exact same feeling I have with Skyrim or something where it's just like, just let me climb things. This is so dumb. And, and there's little things like that. I also, this is very much the Genshin Impact player in me. When I'm on a tall thing, I jump off and I go, oh, wait, shit, there's no hang glider. And then Aloy dies uh, <laughs> because I just expected an open world with elevation now to be able to jump off and hang glide. Um, but that's not a thing in this game, which is fine. Um, the special thing about the game is, uh, to me, like the combat is so yes. cool. And I haven't even gotten into the hardcore stuff, I'm sure. But it is very addictive and fun so far. Exploring the world is great. Aloy's a cool character. The amount of animation on Aloy mm-hmm. kind of boggles my mind. Like, there's just way more on her than in most protagonists in an open world game. Like, down to, like, if you're going down a little incline, she'll kind of, like, move her feet and go down like she's kind of sliding down the dirt like you do in real life. And it's just little things like that that are all over the game that make her feel like a very real character. Um, and, of course, the art design and everything is great. There's some ways the game shows its age because it is four years old now. Like, there's definitely some stuff where I look at, like, lighting or shadows and I go, oh, man, this is... Now that I've seen, like, ray tracing and stuff and what the PS5 can do, this looks outdated. But overall, it's a beautiful game and the use of HDR is is stunning. And that's the reason I wanted to play it on PS5. Because I could have played it on my PC, but my, my laptop obviously doesn't have HDR. Um, and it definitely benefits a game like this. So it's very cool. Um, but I'm having fun with it. I, I'm not, like, in love with the story yet. I'm curious to see if that, like, really grips me at some point. Like, um, I felt like the story got better, like, kind of right around where you are, where it sort of opens up a bit more like I did like yeah. it's never a like it's my favorite story in the game but it's got this really good YA novel kind of feel as yeah. you start learning more about like the history of the world and why it is the way it is like that stuff to me Garden started getting pretty interesting at like the midpoint of the game that's good because my feeling so far is that the world building feels murky to me Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to know more, so that's going to be fun. But yeah, I like. Obviously, Aloy is a already iconic character for a reason. She's just a really cool protagonist to have, and I'm glad I'm playing the game now because she's about to be added into Genshin Impact. So yes, you know. yeah, we're like literally like two or three days away from her being in in Genshin Impact, which is weird <laughs> to think about. Yes. Like it's it's very cool, but it's very it it feels strange that that's like the first collab character is is Aloy, but but. It, yeah, like I think it's it. You're right that like she does feel pretty iconic as like a PlayStation character in a you know in the way that like Nathan Drake or or Kratos are 
um she's she like very quickly is just like in that position to me and it is just i mean everyone said this at the time you said this at the time it is really cool that like guerrilla games turned from doing Killzone for so many years mm-hmm. and then honestly the gap between Killzone, shadowfall and horizon zero dawn is not that long it's only a little bit over three years yeah. And they turn this out, and it's like it's just completely unlike anything they've ever done. Like, at least with, like, Sucker Punch and Ghost of Tsushima, they had done open world before. But, like, Kill like Killzone to Horizon is just so such a wild change. And it is very cool uh, to see that studio reinvent themselves like that. And then now I can be excited for Forbidden West with the rest of you guys, which we now know is, is set to come out in February. We'll see. But that is its set release date. I I bet it's going to hit that February date. It felt like Sony really wanted it for this holiday because I don't think Sony really has anything else for this holiday. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to guess that it'll probably hit that February date. Well, cuz if it goes past it then you're going past the fiscal year. That's why everything's yeah. coming out in February. It's going to be a, that that month is apparently going to have both Elden Ring and Horizon, which is unfair, but we'll do our best. Yes. But yeah, now do you want to hit the news? Yeah, what's going on in the news, Jonathan? All right, um, let's go through some of these really quick. I, I said the Horizon thing. Uh, I There was not a lot out of Gamescom. I scoured all the Gamescom news. I couldn't really find anything. You were saying this to me before the podcast, Sean. The news out of Gamescom is there wasn't really any news out of Gamescom. Yeah, like I was kind of expecting Xbox to have a little bit more. Um, and then I, I learned afterwards that 343 had said that they weren't going to show a big campaign thing. I think so, like, this is probably, I just wasn't following that very quickly or very closely, so I didn't know. Because I just had assumed that game is going to be out. I mean, we now know that game is going to be out, like, December 8th or whatever. Um, yes. Which is, you know, it feels like you are quickly losing your runway. We're almost in September to be able to show off the campaign for that game, which we have seen nothing of since the like infamous demo that caused the game to be delayed for a year plus um, in the first place. So it feels very weird to me that, because I think Microsoft showed a couple of things. I think Forza had like a trailer and stuff like that, but Halo was kind of a no-show. And that's kind of what I was hoping or expecting would be there. Um, I didn't think that Sony would be there because Sony hasn't done much Gamescom stuff for several years. But yeah, it was it was pretty barren outside of I think like maybe the biggest announcement is they're doing like a big Saints Row reboot that seemed it was like a cinematic trailer that didn't jump out to me as anything interesting. And I'm not a big Saints Row guy anyways. And that was like, I think the highest profile announcement I really saw. Yeah, you know, the game everyone's been clamoring for Saints Row in 2021. We need it. Um, yeah. Do you think Halo Infinite is going to hit that December date? You know, I I think I I don't think that Microsoft is going to delay that game again. Um, like them pushing it to December though, very much is a that is like the last possible time it could come out this year. Like them already like going past Black Friday is pretty big, and I think I suspect the only reason they're doing that is because the pandemic like makes probably Black Friday a much less factor than it would be in a normal year. And um, Game Pass is such a big part of their thing with Halo, yeah. right? Like, Because you can still market Halo Infinite and get people to buy Xboxes on Black Friday and just say, like, and you'll get the game on December 8th. Like, you know, that's probably part of the plan. Yeah, but but like, but like, I think Microsoft very much would did not... I Microsoft did not want to push it back past Black Friday. The only reason no. they did was because there are lots of factors in the modern game market that mollify that choice for them. But yeah, like missing this year entirely, it 
I, I just I just don't see it happening whether it should happen or not I don't know um, I don't think that even if it is a thing that the game should be delayed again I, I think Microsoft needs to have that game just be out and if it's kind of fucked up hey it's like a games as a service title anyways it's free to play multiplayer they've already cut the cam co-op campaign to be released several months later they've cut Forge to be released several months later like what that package is anyways if you are buying it is you know if you go and buy a physical version of halo infinite i guess the only thing on that disc is the 60 dollars campaign i guess they probably threw the multiplayer stuff the basic multiplayer package in there anyways to play offline or something but you're not getting much of a game there but hopefully you at least get i don't know some like currency or something for their free-to-play multiplayer but it is like just a weird that game is like very very weird and the closer we get to its release and the less they show of it the weirder and weirder it feels it's just december is such a huge warning sign because yeah. american game companies do not put games out in december mm -hmm. um american i should say western japan does it sometimes like like um nintendo will do this but nintendo will do it with stuff like smash bros that like that, that was the last big one i remember was smash ultimate but like they knew that they they knew where they were going to own December. Smash Ultimate isn't a game that's going to come out broken. Nintendo games don't come out broken, so like that was fine. But like December is is the date you do of like the point of no return. Like this is the last date we can possibly do. We saw yeah. how that worked for Cyberpunk. I my prediction is Halo Infinite either gets delayed or it's going to be a giant fucking mess on release. Um, maybe both. I don't know. It's uh it's going to be a weird thing. I I also wonder like. What if they just push campaign off because they just aren't showing it? What is there a world where like December eighth is the multiplayer comes out and then the campaign is just later? I'm very curious about what the hell is going on with this. Game. I think that's feasible because the the like kind of beta they did a a closed beta um a month or so ago at this point and a lot of the like impressions out of that were pretty positive on the base gameplay. But, like, I I suspect that this game is going to be a Halo 5-esque thing, but even more exaggerated, where I think the game will play very well. And the way that Halo 5 was a really good playing game, mm -hmm. the problem with Halo 5 was it, it had very extremely pared-down options in the multiplayer at launch. So it had, like, two or three gameplay modes. I mean, it was basically Slayer, Team Slayer, and a Capture the... Or, like, it was Capture the Flag and then a King of the Hill-type mode. Um, it wasn't King of the Hill. It was like a slight variation on King of the Hill, but it was basically King of the Hill mode, and that was it. Um, which is, it, you know, I don't know. I think the like original Halo had maybe eight game modes in it in two thousand one, and they only kept on adding to that. And Halo Five was the first time they took away gameplay modes. Um, and then the campaign in Halo Five was also terrible and just an incredible mess. Um, and I think that we're going to get that again, where I think the campaign is just going to be a weird mess hopefully it's at least an interesting mess this time if they're doing a bunch of weird open world stuff with it that'll at least be different but i think it's going to be a giant mess um and then i think that the multiplayer will play very well but i also suspect it's going to be like it's not going to have oddball or assault or like the more kind of slightly like eccentric or esoteric halo modes like infection and all that kind of stuff i think that it's going to be here's some slayer here's some capture the flag here's a territories or king of the hill mode and we'll get the other ones in the coming months to year uh when they as they update the game and that's that is my prediction for how this is going to go we'll see all right another thing coming in december is spider-man no way home 
the third in the home series of Spider-Man. Yes. The MCU Spider-Man with Tom Holland. And, uh, of course, there have been rumors flying all over the place with this movie because the casting was so interesting with, like, Alfred Molina and Jamie Foxx and maybe the other Spider-Men, uh, like Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. But some of that was confirmed and some of it wasn't. So we really wanted a trailer to see what this movie is. And it's a three-minute trailer. I would not call it a teaser at all. Um, yeah. And honestly, most of that trailer is just doing the legwork of setting up the basic premise of this movie, which is that following the ending of the Far From Home film where Spider-Man's identity was outed by J. Jonah Jameson, uh, Peter is miserable, his, his life is all messed up, and so he goes to Doctor Strange, who he became buddies with in Infinity War, uh, and asks him to do a spell, and the spell goes awry, and now the multiverse is open, and in this trailer at least... We get a glimpse of Green Goblin, and we do see the triumphant return uh, return of Alfred Molina as Doctor Octopus. Um, and of course, I'm sure there will be much, much more that they're probably holding off on not putting in the trailers. But this looks pretty good, Sean. <laughs> yeah this this is like it's a good it's a very good premise for a Spider-Man movie, um, and it's like cool that these movies are at this point where they can just go full multiverse crazy bullshit. Um, but it, it's also just I think like. And an all-time great movie trailer in, in a way that I feel like you just don't get lots of movie trailers that are quite this good where it so clearly establishes the premise of the movie to you but that's all it does and that's what you want a trailer to do right we have so many trailers that either you watch it and you have no fucking clue what the plot or idea of the movie is at all it's just like here's a movie and it'll have these characters in it and it'll have action and that's like the only information you get from it or you get trailers that it feels like you watched a trailer and you have just seen the entire movie. Um, so this whole thing of this very nice, compact, three-minute version of just here's the fundamental premise of what the movie is. Peter's identity has been outed. It has messed up his life. He goes to Doctor Strange to try to get like cast this spell. Peter's like conflicted nature of he both wants to have his life be what it was but he also wants like some of the people close to him to know he's spider-man and so he has this like contradiction in what he wants causes the spell to go awry and that rips open the multiverse and uh oh doc ock is here like that is a great premise that is delivered really well in that trailer and then you don't know anything else about the plot past that point like i bet that this is all like the first 30 minutes or something of the movie and that's the only thing we've seen anything from in the trailer and it's like you know, I feel like this trailer, it's the first time in a long time a movie trailer, like, blew up the internet. And I think it's both because the movie looks good, but also whoever, like, came up with and cut the trailer and, and all that, the trailer, like, company that did this one, they did a fucking great job because it's just an awesome trailer. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It is, like, I hope we don't see anything else. I love that it is, it felt like a video game trailer, honestly, uh-huh. of, like, here's the premise of this big thing, but we're not going to show you all the stuff you do in this big thing. Um and I love that. It felt like kind of a game reveal trailer or something. So, yeah, and it's such a cool idea. I think I was a little hesitant before seeing the trailer of some of these ideas, but I think when you see it in action, the idea of being able to bring in all these classic Spider-Man villains, but doing it through the multiverse so you don't have to recast them and you don't have to reestablish them. They, they, we can get Doc Ock fighting Tom Holland's Spider-Man without having to do, like, a Doc Ock movie and recast Alfred Molina, right? Like... 
That's yeah. great. And they're going to do the same with Green Goblin and Willem Dafoe. We're going to have Jamie Foxx in there. I think they're probably planning to do the entire Sinister Six, so there'll be a couple of new ones. But I am, I'm just very excited to see how this is all going to go. And then, of course, if we see the other Spider-Mans in there, I don't give a shit about the Andrew Garfield one. But if we see Tobey Maguire, I, I do want to see Tobey Maguire because he's the best and I want to see him in a new Spider-Man movie. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that will be like a great moment if they if he's in there uh yeah it's yeah. it's it's a great premise i mean that one shot where alfred merlina comes up and he says hello peter uh it's just fucking hell it's just he it's so he, he has it like he has like the intonation and everything is just completely on point um it's fucking great yeah, they're doing a little digital de-aging on alfred merlina to make him look like he did in spider-man 2 and it's, I thought it was a little off in this trailer. It was fine, but like the the thing that sold it was the physical performance, and then him going just the line reading was so perfect. It's yeah, it's great. It's already become a meme as it should be. It's perfect. Um, I love that he's going more for the like shit eating grin, evil Doc Ock from like the middle of Spider Man Two. Yes, because of course it would be a little weird if they tried to like continue his character arc in this. I don't know how that would work, but yeah. Yeah, I also really like um, because I've always liked this in the comic book. I love Spider-Man and Doctor Strange as a pairing. I think they are like a very fun pair of characters because they're just from such different spheres of the world of Marvel. So having like here's this like dumb kid who like doesn't know what the fuck he's doing and his life is constantly going upside down and fucking up in Spider-Man. And then here's the Sorcerer Supreme who like travels the multiverse with the eye of Agamotto and casting spells and fighting demons. Like those two characters intersecting is always a really great, like it just, I think they like, like bounce off of each other super well. And I love that stuff early in the trailer where you see those two characters interacting and you get that energy where it feels like they're pulling from some of the fun, like kind of team up stories in the comic books to kind of inform how these two characters bounce off of each other. Yes, I am very excited for that. You also get a, a, a brief hint of the Benedict Wong character leaving because that's why mm -hmm. Dr. Strange feels he can do this because Wong isn't looking over his shoulder. And I believe that means this happens at the same time as the Shang-Chi movie that's about to come out because we know Benedict Wong is in Shang-Chi. So ah. that's going to be that's going to be a fun little intersection. I don't know what order those movies were like originally pre-COVID supposed to come out in. Um, but yeah, the, the Shang-Chi movie, Sean, that's next week. Jesus Christ. Holy shit. Yeah. That, that we, snuck up. We, we might have to do a podcast on that one. Um, I am I am very excited for Shang-Chi. Yeah. It looks good. All right. Any other stuff before we uh, we dive into some Gundam, Sean? I think that's that's all I can think of. All right. Well then, let's go. Let's go build some uh, build some gunpla. Yeah. Let's go see what's happening in the world of Gundam. Build fighters. Hello and welcome to Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman, and I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here to set our GP bases and begin Plasky Particle Dispersal. Because we are not talking about Mobile Suit Gundam. We're not talking about mecha anime. We're talking about the world of sport. Because we're talking about the wonderful show that is Gundam Build Fighters. The sports anime set in the Gundam franchise with a bunch of gunpla and people making gunpla and just having a good old fun time. It is the great crowd pleaser of all Gundam shows. Um, and I'm very, very excited to talk about it today. I am so excited. I, you know, for a long time, Sean, I had obviously known this show existed. I'd heard you talk about it before, but I didn't really quite know what to expect. 
And then I sat down to watch the first episode. And by the time the credits rolled on that first episode, I was just like, oh, oh, this is my shit. This yeah. is exactly my shit. I like this kind of sports anime thing. And this is even in the like specific brand of like sports anime I like, where it's a fucking tournament. And you've got a little bit of like heightened lunacy in it because it involves the Plavsky particle and stuff. Like this isn't high Q. It's not like just like they're going and playing like an actual sport with like real world rules. It's a little out there. It's got the fucking Yu-Gi-Oh touch of someone who comes from another world and just decides to play a silly game because that's the best thing he can do. Um, it's ridiculous. It's wonderful. It's got a tournament. The tournament, unlike in G Gundam, makes sense, which I love. <laughs> um this is so my shit, Sean, and it is nigh a perfect show. Like, it is 25 episodes, there is no wasted space, there is no slack in it. I love every single character, I love every fight, I love every episode. It is just a blast, and those last couple episodes in particular are the most crowd-pleasing, rousing, get-on-your-feet-and-sheer Gundam has ever been. And I just, I cannot imagine what a Grinch you would have to be to not enjoy Gundam Build Fighters. If you have any love for Gundam, and frankly, if you don't like Gundam, it's just a fun show. It's so good, Sean. Yeah, no, it is, it is, yeah. It's a show that it's hard to imagine someone not liking it because it is just, you know, it's a really, really strong action comedy show with this whole, like, kind of sportsy anime, like, plotting to it of, like, the tournament and all of that. But yeah, it's just it it is so light on its feet. It's got such heart to it. It 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 loves its characters in the world of Gundam and Gunpla and like the hobby and all that so much. Um and it's you know, it's got this just like really I think kind of positive life affirming attitude and message about the like the pleasure and joy and meaning that people can find in like trivial things in the modern world through their hobbies and their like you know their like what they're into and what they spend and invest their time and life into in this way that i think everyone can identify with in different ways and it's yeah as you say it's like kind of a perfect show like it just knows exactly what it wants to be and it is just incredibly efficient and effective at being what it is yeah absolutely it is and it's it's such a it's such a refreshing show, too, I think, at this point in Gundam. I mean, we've loved the last couple of Gundam shows, but, you know, we've been watching a lot of Gundam over the last couple of years on this show, Sean, and you definitely see, like, you know, every show in the mainline Gundam universe, other than, honestly, G Gundam, which is the one that kind of exists in more of the Build Fighters vein, mm-hmm. um, you know, repeats certain types, and it, it has certain story things, like, you know, Double O and Gundam Age are both, you know, borrowing and tweaking and commenting on things from original Gundam and other Gundam shows, right? So, like, there's always some of that. And then Gundam Build Fighters is just kind of this burst into something completely new it's something they haven't really done before the closest analog would be g gundam it very clearly learns a lot of the lessons from g gundam and kind of takes that to the next level and it is just it's such a fun detour that feels like okay gundam you know this is past the 30 year mark is coming up with new ways to have fun with the franchise and that's a really cool thing to see this this deep into the game yeah it's definitely this just like really fantastic palate cleanser of of just feeling like you know it's one of the reasons i was very excited to do this podcast because i had so much fun when we did the kimetsu no yaiba podcast and and we've you know we have been doing podcasts on mecha shows for two plus years at this point 
Um, and it's fun to be able to look at anime in a different genre. As for the things about Gundam Build Fighters, is like it legitimately just is not a mecha show. I don't yes. think there's any reasonable way to like file this under the mecha genre, other than the fact that it's technically a part of the Gundam franchise. But that doesn't make it a mecha show on its own. It like very much literally is a sports anime, and that's where it like draws most of its influence in terms of its characters and its plotting. Um, and there's something so fun about that um and, and, and not only is it one of those like it's one of the best of those because uh, it is a genre that i like a lot both in the like silly more silly Yu-Gi-Oh, hikaru no go that kind of like where you've got like weird supernatural elements and stuff mixed in with the sports and then i also love stuff like chihayafaru march comes in like a lion kuroko's basketball that's more straightforward this is about basketball or karuta or shogi or whatever the show is about and it's just like more serious and and, and more kind of dramatic um, but sports anime is it's a long running, very like, you know, fulfilling genre in its own right. And it's really cool to see Gundam's sort of like the franchise take on what does Gundam look like in that genre. Yes, I mean, I, I love this kind of thing. I, you know, I would even include the best parts of Dragon Ball are this. I mean, like mm -hmm. the stuff with the Tenkaichi Budokai has always been my favorite parts of Dragon Ball. And that is just getting into straight, you know tournament brackets that kind of stuff like it's there's a reason why that stuff endures and why like dragon ball super leaned so hard into that that like half mm -hmm. of dragon ball super is two different tournament arcs right um this kind of stuff is just so fun if we weren't talking about mecha anime all the sh time sean i would be watching more sports anime stuff because i love it like i have all the shows you just named on my Crunchyroll like watch list uh -huh. and it's like well, I have to watch Gundam every week, but if I ever have time, I really want to see Chihayo Furu and stuff like that. Um, and Haikyuu, I'm sure, is great. I've never, I've never seen that one's quite long. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's that's the one I haven't watched because they keep on doing new seasons of it, and every time I'm about to watch it, I'm like, ah, oh, but that new season just started airing. I might as well wait for that to be done, and then something else happens. I'm like, oh shit! Now there's like five seasons. Yeah. I think of Haikyuu, and it's I know it's great. Um, it's gonna end one... soon because the manga ended, so there's yes. not that much more left. But, that yeah. Haikyuu is the one that like I had maybe a dozen students who were like super into Haikyuu. Like that that show is like very popular with with the kids these days. Oh yeah, no, my roommate watched it. I've seen I've seen lots of people watch it. Yeah, yeah, people love the sports anime. Um, yep. it turns out, and it's just it's it's a it turns out to be a very natural fit for Gundam, but like. Even within that, I, I said this on Twitter several times because I didn't know how else to say it. This is like a stupidly good show. Like, uh -huh. it did not have to be this good. It is crazy that moving into this, they are just so firm in what they want it to be. And the level of execution is just so ludicrously high. Like, this is, for what it is trying to do, this is as good as something like Gundam 00. Its aspirations, yeah. like, thematically are not, are not as, like, complex as something like that. But again, for like its goals and ambitions, it is doing it as about as well as you can imagine it being done. Because as you said, it's just one of the best examples of this thing. It just happens to involve Gundam, and it involves it in a wonderful, wonderful way. Yeah, and 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 as proof of that, I I don't I think I maybe talked about this on the first episode of of Weekly Suit Gundam. I don't remember. I might not have gotten into it because it was like there's a lot to talk about in that episode. But this is actually the first Gundam show I watched in full because I had watched G Gundam and Gundam Wing when they were on, on Toonami and stuff. I didn't like watch every single episode, but I watched this after it originally aired in 2014 because I watched everything that was coming out in 2014 because I was in college and I had more free time and in watching 22 minute episodes of anime fit in for your weird, like here's an hour gap between classes and stuff like that. So I was just watching everything. And so 
that would have been like two or three years before I started watching all the other. It would have been two years before I started watching actual Gundam stuff. So I watched the show originally without knowing anything really about Gundam outside of the very basic, like, this is what a Gundam looks like. And that they're technically mobile suits, not Gundams and, and stuff like that. Like, I knew some of that basic stuff and what a Gundam wing and a G Gundam looked like. Um, but I had never seen Mobile Suit Gundam or anything like that at that point. Um, and was not into mecha anime as a broad thing. But I liked, this would have been the, at the same time that I watched Shihayafuru in Kudoka's Basketball and a lot of that stuff for the first time. Um, so I watched this show when it came out and really enjoyed it a lot. And I think it's a testament to the show and the intelligence of the show's like construction that is something that is both like easily digestible and enjoyable by someone who has no experience with the franchise at all, um, because they have Reiji as a co-protagonist that has no idea what Gundam is either, so they can filter a lot of those questions and that stuff through him, um, and you kind of watch it through his perspective as an audience if you don't know what Gundam is. And then if you watch it and you are a big fan of Gundam and you've made Gunpla kits and you've watched every show leading up to this point and you can quote along with, say, the like <laughs> scene where, where he gets, where Amuro gets slapped by Bright and, and he's like, so nani chisai ningen deska and all that shit. Like if you can just recite that scene <laughs> off the top of your head, you can, you, you know, then the show shines even brighter because then like you're seeing all this really, really fun, like lighthearted comedy um, playing with like all these different ridiculous aspects and references from the very broad history of the franchise and so the show is it's one of the things that the thing is most impressive about the show's construction it's this ability to both be something that everyone can enjoy and something that will specifically please long-term fans of the franchise in these very specific niche kinds of ways and that those coexist and make each other better and they instead of them kind of like making the show kind of fall apart because it can't play to either audience effectively yeah, I said this on Twitter last night. I don't know if anyone involved in the show has said this, but it feels to me like this must have been a, the, like the first Gundam show where they sat down and said, "We want to make a Gundam show that is like specifically for like parents who watched Gundam to watch with their kids now that they're adults." Right? There's some mm -hmm. feeling like that of like because it is so accessible, and I actually did not. I don't know if you've told me that, Sean, that this was the first one you saw. I'm sure you did mention it, but I just don't remember that. Um, and that's my sense watching it was I think anyone could enjoy this, but that's proof that you just told me yes. that anyone could enjoy this. Um, but also, even as it's doing that, it's not just like referencing like the popular Gundam stuff. Like one of the main characters, Mao, is piloting and making constant references to After War Gundam X, the Gundam uh -huh. show that was so uh, such a ratings disaster it got canceled. Like it is incredibly granular with its references. It's, you know, doing the, the speech that Amuro has in episode nine of Mobile Suit Gundam and calling it out by name. It is just constantly, you know, it, it's, it full on brings in Crossbone Gundam at the end. Like it is very granular down in the weeds and yet, and threading that needle is such a weird thing. I don't think I can think of an analog that is both that granular for the fans and just such a big crowd pleaser for anyone. I don't think you need to know anything about Gundam to get to that final episode and be like, this is awesome and crowd-pleasing and I want to stand up and cheer, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of franchises that can that can even try to pull it off if they wanted to, right? right? Because there are very few things that have the kind of media legacy that Gundam has in the first place. And part of it is that it is also, it's not just Gun Gundam, it is also Gunpla, right? right. So it is, it is both about this whole anime franchise, but it is also about this like 30 plus year old long running hobby that by 2013 was the like 
most successful both in terms of a like commercial sense but also just in terms of like man means of manufacturing production and design of any real like model kit thing on the planet in terms of like at, certainly at their cost level like you can get a thousand plus dollar model of a plane or something that is going to be more sophisticated than a gunpla you're going to make but you're not going to find anything that is like a 200 dollar model that's going to be anywhere near the level of like quality of build enjoyment of build um, quality of manufacture and posability and all that kind of stuff is like a perfect grade gunpla figure that's like a modern figure it's the best in the world at that kind of thing um yeah. and so yeah. it's love for the gunpla hobby as well as the gundam anime franchise is also i think part of where that kind of joy and warmth and love comes from with the show exactly and you know gunpla is not as popular in our world as it is in Gundam Build Fighters where there are whole stores just in small towns devoted to it but it is like you know a, as you say Sean its legacy is vast and huge to the point that you know I have a hobby store here in Iowa City in you know the middle of middle of America and it's by the movie theater and every time I go to a movie I then go into that hobby store and just like see what gunpla they have and that's where I've gotten like my Gundam markers and stuff like that um and it is, you know, so it is truly like, it's not just a big thing in Japan, it's a cross-cultural legacy of Gundam. I mean, Gunpla was big here before Gundam was big here, uh -huh. right? And Gunpla, Gunpla is the thing that initially helped make Gundam successful. It is as much a part of the legacy of Gundam as anything else. And, you know, why, why the heck not make a show out of it and find a fun way to do it? And I do love that, like in the midst of the it is both build and fighters right in the midst of all the yeah. big action sequences and fights which are great it also has a big focus on the building and the creativity and you know while also not coming off like a crass commercial because this does another pitfall for this could very easily be it just being a little cloying and like please go buy gunpla and it's not it feels like loving and celebratory and you know yes part of the reason the show exists is to go get you to buy gunpla but every gundam show exists for yes. that at least a little bit um this one's just a little more upfront about it and you know what i do love building gunpla and it makes me feel good so why the hell not yeah i mean if it was not for this show i never would have built gunpla like it was yeah. watching this show that made me like because i'm not some i'm not a hobby person like i like as soon as it was possible for me not to take arts and crafts type classes at school i didn't take them like as soon as it wasn't like part of the <laughs> mandatory elementary whatever thing that you can choose classes it's just not a thing that like i've ever been attracted to um and it's always been something i kind of assumed ah, i can't make something like that because i'm just not good at that kind of thing but watching gundam build fighters it both like is a very effective basic level tutorial at what baking gunpla is like it shows you what all the tools are it shows you some like like the basic techniques and stuff like that and it shows how accessible and how anyone can do it and and you watch some of those episodes of like Beiji making his own gunpla and i was like i could fucking do that i'm an adult man i can do this if this <laughs> this like anime boy can do it um and and i bought that rx78 2 like high grade gunpla model and built it and had a great time and i now have like seven of those fucking things so yeah um yeah I, it's like it's this show is very good at what it does and and i'm and i love that it sold me on that product because it's something i never would have explored like this part of me that enjoys the meditative experience of building something um and this kind of exposed me to that that is a part of like who i am and something that i can enjoy and it kind of broadened my horizons in a certain way to some degree 
that's the mark of a good sports anime is how much uh-huh. it wants it, it makes you want to go do the thing right like uh-huh. Yu-Gi-Oh makes you want to go play Yu-Gi-Oh or other card yes. games like it um you know Pokemon makes you want to go play Pokemon with your friends um you know Hikaru no Go created like an entire like new resurgence of Go around the entire world right like I remember reading that in Jump monthly mm-hmm. back when I was a kid and like I've forgotten some of it, but I did go like learn some about Go because I'm like this is pretty cool, and I'd, I'd actually that's a that's one I'd actually love to go back to because it's it's it is a cool manga. But anyway, um, and this one totally does the same thing. Like I have a I have a little gunpla story. So I built a bunch of gunpla when we first started doing this podcast. I did several in like quick succession. I was having a lot of fun with it, mm-hmm. and then around the time I went to Japan, I had a half finished um, uh, Gundam Mark II that I was working on. And then I got back and I was kind of between Iowa and Colorado a little bit because of COVID. And for whatever reason, like I kind of put it in a corner and forgot about it for a long time. And then when I was watching this show, I'm like, well, I want to go build Gunpla because Build Fighters is so fun and I want to do that. And so I went and dug out and uh, it was a little dusty, but I cleaned it up and finished my Mark II. So I finished that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And then I wanted to get more Gunpla because I wanted to do another one. And I had a whole wish list I had made, and I was going through those. And I actually did not realize this until I looked into it. There is a Gunpla shortage right now mm-hmm. around the world um, because of probably COVID supply chains, but also people have been doing it more in COVID because it's a fun thing to do while you're at home. It is a safe, fun activity. Um, and so they're a little hard to find. They're out of stock at a lot of the normal stores you would go to find them. And like... If you were to, like, I used to get a lot of them on Amazon because different stores will sell them on Amazon and they're all like price gouged crazy, like the goof custom that I've been wanting to get, which is normally like 20 bucks is like 50, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't really find any of the ones I wanted. Uh, but my hobby store, I went to my hobby store the other day and they were pretty much out of Gunpla, at least Gundam Gunpla. They had a bunch of other stuff, like they had some Evangelion ones. They do, they do have a pretty cool, like, perfect grade like it's the eva 6 that looks pretty cool that i might have to get at some point when i have money um but they didn't really have the i think they had one like perfect grade of like a the gundam wing that like uh was like a hundred dollars that i wasn't really like looking for i was looking for one of the normal high grade kits but sean they had one normal high grade gundam kit at my hobby store and it was one I would never, ever, ever have thought to get on my own. But because it was the only one they had there, it was only $16. And I thought, this is too good a story to pass up. I bought and I'm now working on a Gunpla of the Death Army mobile suit from Mobile Fighter G Gundam. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think this is a new one. I think that's why the hobby store has it. I think they just put this out. But it is a high-grade kit. It's honestly the simplest high-grade kit I've seen. Because it's a pretty simple mobile suit. It doesn't have a lot of weapons and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's they because that's the one where they have, like, a hundred of those on the yes. screen. So it's a very simple design so that they can animate it without, like, killing their staff. Yes. Well, and in fact, Sean, the box, it's so funny. The box has in small print because the picture on it is a bunch of Death Army robots. And it says, this kid only comes with one Death Army robot. <laughs> It's, like, very funny. But I've been working on it, and you know what? That's fun. It's fun to just uh-huh. go to the hobby store and be like, I would never have built a Death Army robot, but, you know, 15, 16 bucks? Sure, I'll go build the Death Army, and that'll be a fun to have, and it's a fun story, and it's unique. Uh, and those those experiences are just cool to have, too, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Gunpla is a fantastic hobby. It's, like, one of the things that I'm trying to get a better setup here, because I have my... I have my Master Grade Turn A Gundam that I started making literally a year ago at this point. I'm like halfway done with it. I have the head, the torso, and the two arms. And then I stopped because I got so busy with 
like teaching that semester was so fucking crazy that I was like, I'm just going to put this off and finish it when summer comes around, not knowing that when summer came around, I ended up moving to fucking Texas. And so it's, yeah. I have, I'm like literally looking at the box right now. Um, but the only table I still currently have is this one temp table that I'm using with all of my podcast setup. So I don't have a good set to do my gun plot. It is frustrating, but yeah, it's a great hobby. And one thing that, that I saw a video that popped up in my YouTube recommendations, that's a new video from like literally two or three days ago, that if there's anybody else listening to this podcast that like me grew up watching Mythbusters, there's a video of Adam Savage from Mythbusters making a perfect grade um, Gundam, like the RX-78-2 Gundam. Um, that is the first time he's ever made one of those. But if people didn't know Adam Savage that much from Mythbusters, like one of the things is that he like literally like part of his job was making movie props and stuff like that. So he is a like professional level model builder and stuff. And this watching this 20 minute video of him and a couple of other people working in a shop putting together a gun plot and him his mind being blown about how like efficient and well put together it is and the instructions and the plat and he goes into like how the plastic molding works and how it's like I can't believe that like the amount of articulations they're able to get with this like plastic mold and all this shit. It is really fascinating to watch. I highly recommend if you just Google Adam Savage tested is what his channel is. Um it's like one of his most recent videos. That came up um, in my recommends too, so that's pretty yes. cool. Yeah, yeah. So I'd highly recommend checking it out because it is—it's just—it it makes you admire the process even more when you see someone at a professional level kind of breaking down. This is why these kits are so goddamn impressive. The fact that they're you know able to do these pictorial instructions that are technically in Japanese, right? Like whenever there's any text, it's in Japanese. They don't translate them typically. So, but they are able to sell them in any country because you don't need any language. You can just look at the instructions and put it together. And I have never, and I've had to put together a lot of fucking furniture since we moved to this goddamn house. I have, so I've been looking at a lot of instructions and they're all shit. And then you look at a gun plan structure, it's like, this thing is a thousand times more complicated to put together than a little table or whatever, which is like seven pieces with some screws. But it is infinitely easier to understand how to put these together than than anything I bought at an Ikea or something like that. I think that um, all the time, Sean. Like, I built a big Lego kit a couple of years ago. I got this special edition Steamboat Willie black and white Disney kit, which I really love that I have it. It's one of the coolest Lego sets out there. But, like, the Lego instructions pale in comparison to Gunpla instructions. Like, I frequently get confused with Lego instructions. Gunpla, like, I feel like anyone building instructions for anything, like software, hardware go build a gun plan and go oh we should make it like this <laughs> because it is like universal a child could understand it in any language yeah and 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 that and that is the thing about gun to build fighters right is that it captures that like it yes. captures that this is what this like the the freeness and accessibility of this hobby is it's in that like that feeling of warmth and joy you get like gun to build fighters i think that's the thing about the show as we i guess we should probably start getting into it more is that it really embodies that feeling in a way that I've never seen a show able to capture that so much of that kind of like the love of being a hobbyist. It's a cool topic and it's a cool energy to try to capture for a show and Gundam Build Fighters does it expertly. Absolutely. So, let, let, so let's jump into a little bit of the history of the show and kind of how it came about. Um, so really the, the genesis of Gundam Build Fighters comes from um, a, a three-part OVA that came out in 2010 that we're going to do for our, like, we're going to do three episodes on Build Fighters stuff. It's Build Fighters, Build Fighters Try the Sequel, and then we'll do a catch-all episode because there's a lot of little specials. There's some OVAs that come out after Try 
um, all that. And then there's also this uh, three-part OVA series where some of the ideas comes from. We're just going to put all that in that third episode because it would be a weird thing to kind of glom onto this gun to build fighters thing. But just to kind of set up where it comes from, in, for the 30-year anniversary of, like, the Gunpla line of toys in 2010, they produced this three-part OVA called Mobile, or called Model Suit Gunpla Builders Beginning G, um, which is, kind of has a similar basic premise to Gundam Build Fighters, and it's written by um, the same guy, the, the uh, Yosuke Kuroda, who also did the script for this OVA. Um, but it's basically about this kid whose dad takes him to Odaiba and they see the Gundam and he buys him a gunpla kit and the kid's like, oh, this is awesome. He makes a gunpla. And then in, instead of it being this like Plavsky particle thing, it's more of there's like this VR kind of looking station thing that they go to. Almost like it looks like you go to like laser tag, but you get to this big booth and then it scans your gunpla and then you, you do Gundam fights. And the show is very, very light on plot. It's mostly an excuse to advertise a new line of gunpla that they did, including the beginning Gundam, which is then referenced in Build Fighters because that's the one that Reiji makes when he makes his first gunpla is the beginning Gundam from this show. Um, a legitimately and, very cool Gundam. The Tri yes, Beam is, Saber, I want that. That's great. Yeah, it's a very good design. Um, but it, So the show is an excuse to sell those, and then also there is some very good fight animation. It is very gorgeously animated. It's only about 40 minutes long in total, but it's a very nice-looking thing. So we'll, we'll go into that in detail um, when we do the kind of catch-all specials episode. Uh, but that's where sort of some of the basic idea comes from. And then so a couple years after that, Bandai Hobby, which is the sort of department in Bandai Namco that where they do all their hobby products like Gunpla, they went to Sunrise and said, hey, we want to make a like a full anime kind of out of this idea. We want to make an anime based on Gunpla, boost Gunpla sales, all that kind of stuff. It's a smart business choice. And so Ogawa, who is a producer at Sunrise, was kind of given this project. And he, with a couple of other people, started workshopping some ideas. And that's where like, the idea of let's do like a tournament, let's do this whole like Plavsky particle thing and have them move um, through these like particles and all that, that started coming from that process. Um, and so then the time came to pick a creative team. And when they were picking that, they went to two people who were really important figures on Double O Gundam. So they took the, the story writer, the script writer from Double O Gundam, which is Yosuke Kuroda, who also had done that beginning G thing, and they brought him onto the project. And then Kuroda had um, someone he had always wanted to do a big show with since Double O Gundam, which was the assistant director, um, or one of the assistant directors on Double O Gundam, who was Kenji Nagasaki. Um, who they, I guess they really hit it off and they wanted to do a show together. So they kind of brought both those guys on and um, then they also brought on a composer, Yuki Hayashi, um, who, who had done a bunch of different shows at that point. And then he will, their partnership, why that's important, will become clear in a little bit. He so becomes brought, a big composer in the years yes, to come. Yes, he I mean, becomes man. a very big composer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he becomes on and he you know, also does great work on this show, which we'll get to that when we talk about the show itself. But so they come on and then they start kind of building up the idea of Gundam Build Fighters and fleshing it out and then they they make the show with a lot of like returning staff from double o gundam and gundam age one of the, the the points of the project also was specifically to make it so that it was like a kind of family show like I, they didn't say specifically so dads can who grew up with gundam can watch with their kids but the it was made with a clear choice to make it something that it was an all ages kind of project so you know kind of like gundam age which ogawa was also a producer on um, it was like they wanted to make it a Gundam series that was very accessible to younger children, obviously because also they want to sell Gunpla to those children. 
So they make Gundam Build Fighters, and Gundam Build Fighters is a massive success. Um, it's really well liked, but then it also it massively boosts the sale of Gunpla when it comes out. The Gundam Build Strike was the best-selling Gunpla figure of 2013, like um, Bear Gaison. Uh, there's, it's, there's a fun story about that. That uh, Gunpla model was out of stock for like a really long time because they just way undersold it. Like they they thought that the demand was going to be a lot smaller than it was, foolishly, because as soon as you see Bear Guys on, you're like, well, this is going to be the best Gunpla fucking ever. Um, and so, like, I've all been, the... it's It's out of stock right now. I've been trying yes. to find one, and there's been another run on Bear Guy because I cannot find Bear Guys on. It's making me mad. I want my Bear Guy. Yes. And so, basically, most of the big figures, like the Zaku Amazing and stuff like that from Gun to Build Fighters, sell super well. For good reason, because they're really cool models, and then like the show does just such a good job of selling you on the idea of it. And then Gundam Build Fighters is also obviously super, super successful because it basically spawns an entire sub-franchise that is still ongoing within Gundam, because they then make a sequel, Gundam Build Fighters Try, which has the same writer, Kuda, that works on that, but Nagasaki leaves at that point. And obviously we'll get into all that stuff when we get to Try um, for the next episode. And then also then eventually you get all these OBAs like GM's counterattack and stuff like that. Then you get Gundam Build Divers. Then you get Gundam Build Divers Re-Rise. So this whole sub-series is spawned because of how just fucking great Gundam Build Fighters is and how, how well it did as a product. Um, but also I think part of the, the story of Gundam Build Fighters in the modern anime, you can't ignore another thing that happens, which is about two years after Gundam Build Fighters, the same basic creative team of Nagasaki, the director, Kudota, the writer, and Yuki Hayashi, the music composer, all came together to work on and are still working on a little franchise people might know called My Hero Academia. So if you have watched My Hero Academia and you have watched Gundam Build Fighters, that the fact that the major top-level creatives on the show are the same people probably is not super surprising because there you can see so much of the same DNA. My Hero is a much more like specifically dramatic show because of the source material, but it but like the lightness of the pacing and the lightness on its feet, the warmth with how it treats its characters, the like incredible musical score, especially when you get some of the big swelling songs and stuff like that. Um, you know this team turns around in a couple of years and is now and again is still like those are still the people driving the my hero anime franchise and like nagasaki has directed all three of the my hero movies and all that kind of stuff so so this this kind of creative team um moves on to continue to do some really really rad shit in modern anime which is very cool yeah this is definitely has made me want to watch my hero more than i've ever wanted to before um i've wanted to it's just basically it's because it's one of the longer ones out there now mm -hmm. um I, I mean specifically now. It's I know it's not a Naruto or something, but you know, um, yeah. Anime. Says says the guy reading and watching One Piece. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. But I'm caught up on the One Piece manga, so it was fine. I one a week, I'm good. <laughs> um, the anime, I've, I'm caught up on the current arc, <laughs> which is just one arc. Anyway, um, yeah. So, but it also it's you know I mentioned earlier that I think Build Fighters is as good a show as Double O, just in a different way. It makes sense because as you say a lot of the double o legacy lives on here and then goes mm -hmm. on to my here i love that double o like was clearly a pretty landmark series in modern anime because you can yes. still feel the reverberations throughout the industry of those creatives going on to do really cool stuff yeah absolutely yeah like, it is because that was because i had known the my hero connection i didn't until researching i didn't realize that oh yeah no these are the like a couple of the major figures on double o obviously it's not the director of double o didn't do this but you know, the assistant director also has a lot of influence in the direction and like feel and style of a show. So that team yeah. 
continuing forward, it's very cool. And the animation style feels like it's somewhere between Double O and Gundam Age. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's got a little bit more of some of the like roundedness of Gundam Age, but overall, like the character designs, um, I think the way the mobile suits look in particularly looks a lot like Double O to me, um, which I think is a really nice sweet spot for like modern uh, digital anime Gundam. It, it's just a good way to make those mobile suits look and move and everything. So it's and the uh, fact that they are literally supposed to be plastic models makes the slightly flatter look of digital animation work so much better does, for them yeah. that it like it sells you on like the whole setting and the idea of the world and they play into it by like playing with scale and stuff like that to make you aware of these are actually little tiny figures that are little dinky plasticky things at all times. Yes, they have a lot of fun with it. Well, cool. That's a, I, I like hearing the history of this one because it is one of the more pivotal entries in Gundam because, as you say, it spawned this whole other franchise that we're going to be doing many more episodes on in the, in the near and then long-term future. Yeah, because because you know I've I've only seen like I think what it was like the first three episodes of Build Divers, which until I realized I can't be watching a new Gundam show while I'm also watching old Gundam shows for this podcast because it's making my head confused. So I gave up watching that pretty early. I was like, I'll just watch it for the first time when we fucking get to it, rather than try to get ahead of the podcast. Um. So yeah. So so like the Build franchise is is one of like the major concerns going forward for Gundam, and it's largely because Gundam Build Fighters is so fucking good. What do you think? What do you think is the better sub franchise, this or SD Gundam? I mean, I've, I've the only SD Gundam stuff I've watched <laughs> is the really awful Toonami CG only show that was co-produced by like Toonami, so it's actually an American show, effectively from like two thousand four. That thing is garbage. Um, and then some of like the little shorts they played in some of the old movies are actually kind of fun. But other than that, SD Gundam seems pretty. It's it's if if this is Gundam if Gundam Build Fighters is Gundam but for kids SD Gundam feels like Gundam but for like toddlers right it's got like a Teletubbies <laughs> like this is this is the like Blues Clues version of Gundam is what any like SD Gundam scene I've thing I've seen that's not the super old stuff that is more just like movie shorts um yeah SD Gundam's not not for me when you say that I would totally watch Blues Clues but for Gundam that sounds pretty good um you got Steve getting in a mech at the end it'd be great. It would be very yeah, and then you know he Steve. You find out that Steve was actually a child soldier um, when he was younger. <laughs> Blue is is a cyber new type dog. Um, it's a whole thing. It's very dramatic. I want to know who Char is in the world of Blue's Clues. He's the guy who took over for Steve at some point, and you're like, well, this isn't my Blue's Clues, and you're like five years or eight years old at that point. You're like, well, I should, probably shouldn't be watching Blue's Clues anyways. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So now, do you want to dive in and just talk about this fucking great show? Yeah, let's go ahead and let's let's talk about how fucking awesome Gundam Build Fighters is. Well, where do you want to start, Jonathan? I want to start with Say and Reiji, and both the yeah. main characters and the first episode, because this show has one of the great Gundam premieres. Like it is just mm-hmm. it hooks you and it sells you on what is honestly a pretty big premise to sell, right? Like, especially yeah. if you've been watching a lot of Gundam, this is a big shift. They've got to introduce things like the Plavsky particle and like buy you into kind of the ridiculous hyper reality of this show, which is very much in that sports anime vein of like, it's our world, but they care about this one specific thing more than anything else, right? You yes. know? Um, and then kind of like, and every sports anime does that. Every, you know, as grounded as you're going to get, whether it's basketball or what's the game in Shihayafuru? It's, uh, 
Karuta. Yeah, like Karuta. Yeah, the card game. Yeah. Right. It's like this one kind of like niche thing that is like everyone on Earth cares about. And then you can kind of layer on like your Yu-Gi-Oh or something or your Hikaru no Go. Like how much mysticism are you putting on top of that? And I would say Gundam Build Fighters has a a light, like a sprinkling of that. Because it does have some interdimensional bullshit. Um, But you're always going to have that and you kind of have to sell that reality. Um, But you also have to like introduce us to these characters in their world. And I just think that first episode does a really great job of Say is just instantly a great character. Mm-hmm. Reiji is such a he is one of the funniest Gundam characters ever, and he is right off the bat. Say's mom has got it going on. We'll talk about yep. that. Um you meet Mr. Ral. Oh my God. It's just it this is a show that really hits the ground running. And Gundam shows frequently hit the ground running, but this is especially because this is 25 episodes it's got to do it fast and i just can't imagine not being sold on the project by the end of episode one yeah and and so i think something about build fighters that i love so much that i think you know gundam used to be like incredible at and then as most anime modern anime did it gets a little bit like sort of fuzzier is that like episode by episode pacing right Uh so build fighters goes back to this very classic gundam old school gundam model of you have a fight every fucking episode like come hell or high water you're at the fucking inn or whatever and it doesn't seem possible that there could possibly be a gundam fight there is right because every episode there's gunpla yakuza because that's the kind of world this is it's great um and so every episode is structured around usually like the first half is like sort of character setting and kind of building up whatever the core kind of conflict is at the heart of the episode and then you have your mid-episode break and then you come back and that's where then it's like okay now it's time for the actual big fight of the episode usually featuring Sei and Neji and then as it goes on sometimes you get like amazing Kaguchi episode and stuff like that um, but the the like choice, the very deliberate choice to say every single episode not only is going to have a fight, but it's going to be the centerpiece of the episode, right? Like the episode is going to be focused around in some way. Eventually, there's going to be some sort of fight, you know, in the tournament. Very much so. A little bit lighter in some of like the the side episodes, but even the side episodes, they they'll they'll have like a big fight in the second half. Um, and that focuses the pacing of the show so well. In that way that kind of harkens back to original Mobile Suit Gundam, where it's like, no matter what, someone's going to get in this fucking Gundam, and someone's going to fight a Zaku or some horse shit, because it has to happen every episode, no matter what, because we're selling these toys, we're making it for the kids, we're doing all that kind of stuff. And for some shows, if it's done poorly, that can be incredibly exhausting. But if it's done well, it's just such a solid spine to like individual episodes, and it gives it such a tight fucking structure and that's true of every episode in Gundam Build Fighters is every episode stands so well on its own, is totally enjoyable as its own story, embedded in this larger narrative with larger character arcs and stuff like that. And you get that like right off the bat with that first episode where this isn't a Zeta Gundam thing where, you know, it takes two episodes to kind of deliver the core premise or something like that. This is a, no, you watch that first episode and you know who the main two main characters are. You know, like what the setting of the world is, you know... Like, this is going to be the core dynamic is that Say is the kid who's really good at building the gun plot, and Reiji is the guy who's really good at fighting them. And you also get kind of one of the core character dynamics, which is that way that they kind of compensate for each other's weaknesses that Say knows what the gun plot in Gundam World is that Reiji doesn't, but Reiji knows how to pilot them. And then obviously, they both characters grow to fill in their own weaknesses over the course of the show. And that's kind of the centerpiece of the ending is Say 
you know, growing into his own, not just as a builder, but also as a fighter. And all that is set up just in one 22-minute episode because it's so tightly paced. Yes, and, you know, I think that episodic structure is also helped by... This is a 25-episode show. This is the first 25-episode Gundam show we've talked about. I I think in some sense you could argue Double O is two 25-episode shows, and there's a definite feel of, like, the one-season thing works really well uh, here again, and that's part of what makes this work so well. But yeah, I I agree, and I think also in that first episode, if you've watched this kind of thing before, you see the shape of it right away. Uh And that is a feature, not a bug, right? Like, you see the overall shape that this is going to be they're going to come together they're going to do the local tournament they're going to do the big tournament they're probably going to win at the end Reiji is going to have to leave and go back to his world you know Say is going to be alone but he's going to be a complete person you like see where it's going to go and again that is a feature not a bug that is part of the pleasure I think of good sports stories like this of of something like a Rocky or the Karate Kid or something like that right um, Cobra Kai is a show on Netflix right now that I think has done that very well where I think a lot of us predicted what the overall shape of that show would be in season one and they're doing it and that's a pleasure because there's something both comforting and also like right about like the, the archetypes work and you don't need to try to undermine those um, and I think Gundam Build Fighters plants that flag pretty early on yeah absolutely and and it it's kind of very no nonsense with it establishing a lot of its premise like watching gun and build fighters again um for what i guess this is like the third time i've watched it because i watched it when it came out then i watched it in my original gun and viewing and now i watched it again um i'm i'm always shocked in that original mobile suit gundam kind of way of like how quickly it's able to move through stuff that in my head it takes like way longer for them to get through that initial tournament but that initial tournament is done in six episodes like they they blow through some of that like early setup stuff instead of being like okay, let's have a couple of episodes kind of padding it out. They know how to sort of just say, and that's part of the benefit of it being 25 episodes as opposed to traditionally this kind of show would be at least a, a whole year, um, if not even longer. Um, you know, because this is, you know, if you're doing the more kids-focused sports anime, that's a lot of that stuff is the stuff that, like a Yu-Gi-Oh show that just goes fucking forever um, until eventually like, ah, now let's do a new one, but they're on motorcycles and have that go for like five years. Um, but the tightness of this, there's just a, now let's just move to the next plot beat. Let's just move to the next thing. Um, and, and you keep that pace up, um, throughout the series so nicely that it's like when you watch Mobile Suit Gundam and you're like, you're telling me they only spend one fucking episode on the moon? Like, how is that possible that they only, that that was one episode? It must be a whole like three episode story arc or something. Build Fighters has like that exact same effect to me. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that first episode is also just, it grips you with its premise because the premise has this great sort of two-pronged thing of the sports uh-huh. approach and then the the buddy comedy thing that we're, we have going on with Say and Reiji. Mm-hmm. And um, again, that, that is not like, this is not the first show to try something like this. There is like the obvious Yu-Gi-Oh comparison. But, you know, this obviously, I think, one-ups something like Yu-Gi-Oh by having both halves of that character of pairing be really interesting on their own terms, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Yu-Gi-Oh! is one where um, Dark Yugi and Yugi are different characters, but Dark Yugi so overtakes that show, and Little Yugi never really comes into his own as a character, I think, until maybe... There's some points in the manga where maybe, but it's, it's a, like, I think, a, a significant weakness of that story at certain points. And because you have Sei and Reiji, they're literally different people, but also they're very good about, like not having the boy from the other dimension overpower things. Say is a great, interesting character uh-huh. on his own terms. And Reiji also 
is not like bogged down by like wanting to get back to his world or all of the different pitfalls that could kind of like overburden this show with lore. I love that that first episode is just he meets this strange boy who gives him this magical orb. He makes a wish. That final fight against the dickhead kid who loves the Gyan uh-huh. is just so entertaining and it's just such a big like get on your feet moment when Reiji comes in and pilots the gunpla for him and like grants his wish and uh, you see the shape of it like I said and you're just sold on it on both of those levels because you want to see this character dynamic play out and you want to see more of the cool gunpla battles yeah absolutely and it is it is like that co-protagonist structure that is the heart of the show right it is it is the the skill with which both those characters feel like they are full protagonists in their own right, right? Like, this show is a true two-hander between yes. the two of them. Um, like, Say is definitely, like, the the most center protagonist of the show because he's the first character you meet and he's the last character you see. Um, but, but very much it is about these two characters meeting and growing with each other. Um, and, and, yeah, they don't... If this is something true throughout most of the character relationships. They don't try to overburden or over-dramatize it, right? There's not, like, the big falling out that Say and Reiji have at, like, the midpoint of the series or something. Like, sometimes they'll have an argument here or there, but they're, like, buddies through thick and thin in this very, like, nice way that, like, ch- children's friendships often are, right? That it's that it's not, you know, it's not burdened with, like, the complexities of, of when people get older and sometimes there's a lot of other stuff that can get involved in friendships and shit like that. It's just this very simple, like, no, we like each other. We're good friends. We both like bounce off of each other and we make up for each other's weaknesses and we're going to be partners and like work through this thing together. And that's kind of it. And that's, and, and the show knows that's enough. It does there. You don't have to have the big dramatic misunderstanding that they didn't have to get over. And it's true of, again, most of the character relationships It's true of like Say's relationship with China and that whole side of the show, it's not a, we have to have like multiple arcs of them getting into fights or like jealousies and shit like that. It's like, no, these are characters that like each other and they just gradually grow to like each other more and become and like grow as characters more through their relationship over the course of the show. And that's enough. It's got this very nice like slice of life kind of energy to it of that, that anime genre that is very low on conflict, very low on genre and is more about enjoying spending time with characters for its own sake rather than it being like something that has to be motivated through strong plot reasons and i love how much gundam build fighters grabs that energy while still being able to have its core plot and its core themes and it's like action and all that stuff that does drive it forward but the characters are more informed by you just wanting to spend time with them well and and absolutely and i think that that side of the show serves the other side of it like it's very something you want in a sports anime like this and i actually think this is one of the biggest lessons this show learns from some of the flaws of g gundam Uh and you know i love g gundam i will always stand g gundam it's not a perfect show obviously and one of that show's weaknesses we talked about that at the time and have talked about since is that it's it's like 50 episodes is probably too much for what that show is doing yeah And it also has a fairly small set of characters. And so G Gundam has this problem of having a pretty small core cast that it stretches out over 50 episodes. And so you do have repetitive character pairings and repetitive character dynamics where there's really, like, I love Chibidi Cricket, but there's only so much you can do with him until you're doing a clown episode. Um, yeah. There's only so many times that Domon and Rain can have a falling out over the course of a 50 episode TV show. Like, right. some of those times are really effective, and other times it's like, 
like how many times do these characters possibly have a fight and like run away from each other like it's this has been the seventh time it's happened over the course of the past two fucking episodes somehow yeah and so Gundam Build Fighters I think is really smart and it starts doing it right away of building a big cast there are a lot of characters like you get to know of those like final 16 like eight to ten really well are just like central uh-huh. characters to the show, main cast members. Uh, you know, you have Mr. Fellini, and you have Meijin Kawaguchi, and you have Aina, and you have just just all the you have Mao, my favorite character, and you have um, the the samurai boy. Yes, you have, early genius himself. Early genius himself. You just have all these characters, and those are just the fighters. You then have you know you have Say's mom, and you have China, and you have the some of the other people at school, and you You've have got Mr. Ramba Ra- motherfucking Ramba. 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 Yeah. Blue giant is here. We'll talk about it. You have Mr. Rell. So, so, and and you have so you have lots and lots of characters who are vibrant and big and do not necessarily come in overburdened with conflict and lore, which means you can work with them pretty fast. And you do it in a compressed time span of twenty five episodes, which means that Gundam Build Fighters over twenty five episodes always has something to cut to. There's yeah. there's no point. Where you're starting an episode or cutting to a B plot and you're repeating a character dynamic in a like non-fresh way. Like it's always moving forward and doing new stuff. There are obviously character pairings you come back to a lot, like say in Reiji or Reiji and Ina, but they're always moving forward on that level. And then when you cut to other matches, you're never having to like repeat fights, you're never having to like repeat character conflicts. You're always moving forward and having something fresh with us every episode. And you'll forget about a character and then they'll cut back and go like, I love that character and this is so fun. And that's what you need, I think, for something like this because I think a sports anime by definition like has to be kind of high energy, right? You have uh-huh. to have to keep that energy up. And I think the number of vibrant characters this show has helps with that. You know, on the last episode of the podcast, we did some of the main show, the Weekly Stuff podcast, we did some listener mail and someone asked what Gundam show has the best cast and Sean you said maybe well we both said it's original Mobile Suit Gundam yeah. but you said if not original Mobile Suit Gundam your answer was Gundam Build Fighters I think I might be with you on that like Gundam yeah. Build Fighters has a fantastic cast and I think it kind of has to to be as good and as addictive as it is yeah because it's it's a show that leans on its cast more than other Gundam shows because it's like inherently less plot focused because the the plot of Gundam Build Fighters is very simple right it's yes. it is a tournament like that's it like the whole show is the this one tournament it is Sei and Reiji meet each other they want to enter the tournament right so they enter the preliminary tournament and it's mode they have like good smaller goals and motivations along the way that kind of like help build up the structure so a lot of that is around yuki who then bails out and he becomes amazing kawaguchi all that stuff but they win the preliminaries they then go to the world tournament they meet all these people at the world tournament and they start competing there and then you have your sort of other parallel plot line at that point which is the chairman who is also from the parallel world with reiji and he wants to stop them from winning because he's going to expose the secrets of the plastic particles and know that this guy is like a petty thief or whatever and bring him back to the parallel world that reiji is from and so you have the machinations of the chairman and then you have the dynamics of the tournament and that's the entire fucking plot of the of, of the entirety of gun and build fighters right compare that to something like if you try to explain what the plot is of the first season of double o gundam you can't do that in 
two or three sentences. It's just not possible. There's too much, there are too many characters, too many plot, like, political dynamics, too many things going on there to try to contain it in something like that because it's a much plot, more plot-focused show the way that most Gundams are because they're big war stories. This isn't a big war story. It's a small-scale, like, low-stakes sports show, and it and it plays with that, and it knows that, right? It's one of the joys of the show is that normally Gundam is a world that is life or death and it's full of full of trauma and child soldiers and people who have been manipulated and abused to kill their friends and all the kind of awful shit that happens. There's shows about war and death and trauma and like weapons technology and being ripped from your family and all those kinds of things. And Gundam Build Fighters is fundamentally about the exact opposite of that. And they call it out. They, like, lampshaded in the show. When in a very early episode, okay. the show... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I wanted to talk. I was wondering when I was going to bring this up. But I wanted to bring this up because Mr. Rao has a speech. Yes. That, to me, is the thematic thesis statement of the show. Yes. Because Gundam Build Fighters is not as thematically complex as a double-O Gundam. It is not commenting on, like, Middle East Forever Wars or anything like that. But it is a show with ideas on its mind. I made a joke uh -huh. tweet the other night that like the this show has a great message, which is buy Gunpla and be happy. And that is one of the messages of the show. Yes. But I think the more fundamental message is what you were articulating earlier, Sean, about like the joy of hobbyism, you know, as like yeah. a real thing beyond just like the capitalist side of it. And so Mr. Rao has this speech where he says and I have it all here because I wanted to bring it up on the show, where he says, uh -huh. Building and battling gunpla is merely a hobby. Unlike the Mobile Suit Gundam story, we're not in a state of war, so we don't have to put our lives on the line. The fights are merely a game. You're absolutely right. But despite, no, because of this, that is the most common French sentence in uh -huh. anime, um, people put everything they have into their gunpla and into their battles because they like it. They can take it seriously. And that's sort of the idea of the show. And it's a beautiful idea. And it's... The low stakes is a feature, not a bug. The low stakes is what gives this show meaning the way the high stakes gives double O Gundam meaning, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I it really, makes... I don't know about you, Sean, but I really related to that speech. Mm -hmm. And I had to write it down because that's my exact thoughts on why we do this podcast. Yes. You know? I thought the same thing, yeah. Yeah, like we do this podcast and we put a lot of work into it and we love it. And I mean, we've been doing it every week for the main show, 10 years. Now Weekly Suit Gundam, we're going on three. You know, uh -huh. it's crazy. We're coming up on 40 episodes of Weekly Suit Gundam. And, and you know, I think we put more and more work into it the more we do. And it's because it's because nothing is writing on it. It's because no one is telling us to do it. We don't have like a sponsor who needs us to make an episode on something so we can sell you a Casper mattress. It's not a, a job where like something relies on that. I feel a lot more passionate about this than I do some other stuff in my professional life, which I am passionate about. I care about my work. You care about your work. Like we're passionate yeah. about that. But I do feel a different kind of passion about this because it is a hobby and because there's nothing driving me on it but my love for it. And that is something you need to be alive, right? You just need it to live a yeah. good life. And it's very much fundamentally what the show is about because they repeat that sentiment multiple times over the course of the show. And they, they specifically, they constantly come back to that line because it becomes a sort of like catchphrase for Reiji in a way. It's like, 
it's because it's a game is why you can take it seriously, right? Because it's not something you have to take seriously. The fact that you are taking it seriously in some ways has more meaning because it's something you have chosen for yourself, not something that has been forced upon you in the way that, you know, being the Gundam pilot is a thing that has is forced upon the protagonist of every Gundam show. It's never something that, you know, they want to do. It's always something that they have no choice but to do it. And it fucks up their life forever, right? Um, and there's something about this message of saying it's like, it, but in the real world, you know, most people fortunately aren't in circumstances where that needs to be the case, where it's like you do have the freedom and the leeway to choose what you care about and what you want to spend your time and life and energy on. And it, it being very much about this message of, and you should find that thing and pour yourself into that thing because that is what can fulfill you. It, does, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be your job or your profession or your career. It doesn't have to be the thing that you are staking your life on in the way that you are staking your life on what your job is because that's how you fucking pay money to get fucking food and shit like that to live. Um, it is something you choose to do because you want to do it. Um, and it's, it's such a like really positive, life-affirming message that is reflected in the way the show's... It's not just what the show is saying, it is what the show itself is. And I think that's why it's so important that the character drama is so low stakes. It's so simple, you know? Like, even the most, like, significant character drama in the show is probably Reiji and Isla in that whole dynamic. And at the end of that, it's, like, the most simple thing. It's just, like, now yeah, fuck this guy. Just stop. Just stop. Like you, there, you can find another way to do this. You can't be. You shouldn't be allowed to be forced to do something you don't want to do. And it's maybe you know in the real world there are more complex like situations with something like that. But in the worldview of Gundam Build Fighters, it's like the the show needs to have this like love of things that allows that to be a low stakes drama that is resolved somewhat simply because it has to be a thing where you can see that you do have these options in front of you and you don't have to do what other people are telling you to do. And then you move past that drama and, and that's the highest it gets. Most of like the character dynamics, like with Fellini and Mao and Niels Nielsen, they're like super low stakes. There's no like big dramatic evil turn. The antagonist of the whole show is this like buffoon. The antagonist who... of the show is like Team Rocket. Like that's the level yes. he's working at, right? Like he is someone who fundamentally poses no real threat. Except for is... it's even less than Team Rocket because Team Rocket's trying to steal your fucking pet. This dude's just trying to make you so you don't win this, like, game. That's right. it. Right, right, exactly, not exactly. trying to take your property or anything. Yeah, no, great, yeah. It is it is so fun, and I think because it's Gunpla, and and in this world, it, they, they are able to scale it from what people actually do with Gunpla in the real world, which is just build them and play with them, right? Or show them and display them. But then you also have the whole fighting element that is to the fiction of this show. Um they're also able to present that thing that a lot of sports animes do this and they do it great where it's it's like the level of your hobby doesn't matter. It's just that like you love it and you do it. So, you know, like China is also super into Gunpla, but she doesn't like fighting them, but she likes building her bear guy because that's super fun and it brings her closer to say and it's something they bond over. And I love that like Isla, after she is able to get away is when she's able to start enjoying the what Gunpla is really about and she builds her Miss Sazabi, which is... Awesome. That is the best name of a fucking mobile suit in the show bear guy is great but miss sazabi is mwah, i want the arcade game it's miss pac-man but it's miss sazabi uh -huh. oh man but um what was i trying to say here just that again like like i said that that kind of scalar level of hobbyism of you know whether you're going pro with it like you know say in rage er 
or whether you're just sort of hanging out one night and you're building a gunpla because you need to hang out and make something cool. Um, it, it definitely does have meaning on that. And of course, the, one of the larger themes of the show then is also about how hobbies bring people together, right? Mm-hmm. And Say becomes a fuller person at the end of this show than he was at the beginning because he followed his hobby and it brought him to other people who are like him and enjoy his things. And he has a whole lot of friends now. And again, I connect that to, to this podcast. This is how you and I have basically expressed our friendship for 10 years now. Yeah. <laughs> but I've also met lots of cool people online and hear from listeners. And I love that side of it, you know? Yeah. They, yeah. It brings people together and like you grow through those, through those interactions. Yeah. It's a really yeah. great message. Uh, and while we're talking about, like, Say and Meiji as kind of our co-protagonists, I do want to shout out the, the two voice actors here. Um, so Say is voiced by uh, Komatsu Mikaka, um, who I know as she's... Uh, oh God, what's the name of the character? I think it's Tosatsu, or um, I think that's maybe slightly off. But it's the character from Origairu, um, the boy. Because she's... Like, both of these actresses, like, mostly voice kind of either, like young boys or they're kind of off in that range totska that's the name of the character i'm thinking of from origairu which is a show i really like um and and then you have i think the interesting one is kokodu sachi who is the voice of deji who she is not in a lot of stuff there's a couple of bigger roles she has probably her biggest thing is i haven't watched this show but i know it's pretty popular she's a character and she's arthur from uh seven deadly sins um which that seems to be a pretty big character because she has it's listed like five times on her credits um the different seasons and stuff of that show um and then she's really she is often cast as like the young boy version of a full male character um because there's like multiple ones i recognize on here the biggest one would be bakugo one of the main characters of my hero academia that she's not the voice of bakugo normally but in flashbacks in that show when he's a little kid she plays the little kid version of him um, because she has that really good kind of like punk little boy voice um, that she is a little bit older with Reiji. Most of the ones she voices that I've seen are much younger kids. Um, She's so she good at it, I have to yeah. say. Uh, fooled me. I thought Reiji was a guy doing the voice. Like, say I could totally tell was a woman doing a boy's voice. Like, now that I think about it, I can tell. But Reiji just, it's a very seamless, like, slightly yeah. older, like, preteen boy punk voice. I love it. It's such a good performance. Yeah, and I do love that between the two main characters, uh, Dinko, Sei's mom, China, Isla, and then Mao, there are like long stretches of the show where it's just women. <laughs> like even yeah. if the the two main characters are boys, like it's like uh, like you know you have got Niels Nielsen is a guy, obviously Rawl is a guy, uh, Meijin Kawaguchi is a guy, but like so many of the characters are voiced by women. You have long scenes. Um, they're just them, and I always love any of these kinds of shows that I love imagining um like the like having to play like the young boy with your like young girl love interest and what that like dynamic must feel like in the studio must be kind of weird i don't know it just <laughs> always feels like it's like i'm trying to be a boy but it's like of a girl there's like this whole like hetero thing and it's like this is like really weird and weird and it's like it's fun to imagine what those recording sessions have to be like when you're doing your whole like weird like little kid flirting in your both yes. adult women <laughs> But it is a great voice cast. I mean, so yeah. so Say and Reiji we love. Reiji is such a funny character. Like overall, I think 
Gundam Build Fighters is the funniest Gundam show, right? Like, yes, and it's the one that is like most intentionally a comedy. Like yes. the show is, it's an action comedy, right? It's yeah. like action comedy sports anime. Um, it is, and it is like I think it is like raucously funny. I laugh yeah. out loud basically every episode because there's some fucking ridiculous oh, joke. Absolutely, I do every episode, and Reiji is is often the source of laughs. I think he's just that's a really good threading of having a main character who is also very funny in his own right, which is often hard to pull off. And some of that is that Say gets to be the straight man in some situations, but I also mm-hmm. think Say is funny and his reactions to things are funny. Like I don't think anyone gets out of this show not generating a good belly laugh at some point, and that's a pretty big win. Um, but you know all the stuff with Reiji and food and all of his interactions with Isla slash Ina. Um, yeah, he's just consistently such a joyful character to watch, and I think was definitely in those first couple episodes the things that like pulled me in most was just Reiji is such a like vibrant character, which helps because he is like you say the kind of outsider character who is also there as the stand-in for people who maybe don't know Gundam. Yeah, because he's the character that you filter all the, like, absurdity of the world through him. And I think that's part of, like, the great dynamics is, like, you have a way is, you know, other than the fact that it's heightened because it's, like, Gunpla and Gundam fights, build fights and stuff like that. We don't actually can't fight them in the real world. But a lot of, like, the zaniness of Say's world is not that different than, like, just a normal kind of high otaku kind of Gundam thing, right? It's, like, the jokes that we make on the podcast and shit like that. It's referential humor. It's the how, like, deeply invested you are in in something that is fundamentally trivial, the whole hobbyist thing and all that. And, and a lot of those jokes are, like, not actually that exaggerated. It is kind of just kind of the jokes that Gundam fans will make with each other. And, and Deiji is a character that you can kind of filter that through and enjoy the, like, how absurd it is, like, them reciting whole lines of dialogue and the ridiculous quotes that Ralsan is constantly talking through and stuff like that. Um, all gets filtered through characters like Reiji, and then China is the other one that has a lot of that. Like, she's very much the straight, like, woman, I guess, of the show that, like, is just constantly bouncing off of Ralsan in very hilarious ways. But then on the flip side, Deiji is also the most ridiculous character in the show because he is a prince from another fucking dimension. Yes. And and that is a thing that they thoroughly establish in the second episode of the series. It's not a, like a secret. I mean, you basically know that that's more or less the dynamic in the first episode, but they definitively establish it in the second episode. It's just that nobody else fucking believes him. Um, well, because and, here's how they do it. This is I love how they handle the whole Aryan or whatever the name yeah. of the... Ariet, whatever the name of the dimension yeah. is so well. Because in that second episode, Say is like, okay, tell me who the fuck you are, disappearing Reiji boy. And Reiji says, just gives him this totally honest you know, depiction of, I was a prince, I fell into this thing, now I'm here. And it's accompanied by ridiculous music and like crayon drawings of Reiji yes. playing around in the world. And what I love is that the, there's, there's two jokes you can do with that scene. There's the easy joke that gets you one scene of laughs, which is Reiji is making it up and he's a liar. And that's what Say thinks. And that's what everyone thinks, right? That Reiji is just goofing with them. And that's one joke you can do. Or you can make the joke that he's telling the truth and string it through 25 episodes until at the very end you see him in like the palace and now Isla is there with him. Mm-hmm. That is fucking funny. Like that is, I love their commitment to that bit of... I guess you're not 100% sure what the fuck is up with Reiji, but I love that as you go along, you find out, no, this is not a deceitful person. 
he told Say straight up, I'm a prince from another dimension, and he just is a prince from another dimension. He's just a prince who, he's a kid, so he doesn't give a shit about, like, getting back or, like, his princely duties or anything. He just wants to hang out in this world and eat meat buns and hang out with his friends and fight Gunpla because it's fun. And that is the funniest way they could handle that character, and it's great. Yeah, and, and, and it so informs who he is as a person in a way that's really interesting because it's a constant thing he does of him talking about like i need to do this because if i back down or whatever it'll dishonor my family name that is clear that like he comes from a world that like probably is dealing with stuff that's like more serious than modern day japan with people running around playing making gunplot figures and shit like that and he kind of you feel the sense that he comes from this almost like Shakespearean kind of heightened royalty kind of thing. Um, and he's talking called, he's talking about family honor and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in many ways, that's like why the Gundam stuff is so attractive to him because it is this like, he's such a skilled fighter. He's clearly, he was probably trained by like some ancient sword master or some horse shit in his pa palace of flowers or whatever in his alternate magic dimension he comes from. Um, and so he has this like, traditional like military prince kind of whole aesthetic to him and he kind of pours all that into this silly trivial like combat game or whatever with these plastic figures and that's like what informs him as a character and that dynamic is so rich that that he has this fundamental seriousness of him that is like feels like it is in a dramatic sense way more serious than other people but it comes from a background that is so antithetical to the world that the show is set in that you see and interact with on an episode by episode basis that it is funny in its own right while earnestly informing who he is as a character absolutely and i also love that we never go to the other dimension like it's never yeah. a big piece of like they never spend a bunch of time doing the lore when reiji goes back at the end there's one scene where we see a little bit of background but otherwise it's completely about what actually matters which is him and isla in that last scene right um yeah. the most we get is the lore behind the chairman who was a thief who came to this world, the Plavsky particle came with him, and he starts to exploit it. But that's it. Like, the other world is important because it's where Reiji comes from, and it's where the Plavsky particle comes from. And it doesn't, like, the show is very good about knowing what this story actually needs and what it doesn't. And it doesn't need, like, a big info dump at some point about, like, the society of this other dimension and where Reiji comes from. You can just do it through the characters and then have a little bit at the end. And I love that sense of focus, too. Because I think, I have to imagine, if this show ran any longer than it actually does, the, the, you would be tempted to, like, do the lore dump on it. And I don't care. Yeah. It's not what's important. It's very easy to imagine the show having, like, a very bad middle season arc about, like, a the the maid that he has from the other world, like, teleporting here also and, like, taking him back. And then Reiji has to fight his way back and you see that whole side of it. And that could be, like, an interesting show in its own right. But it would so bog down what Gundam Build Fighters is and it's that, that sort of lightness on its feet that makes the show so fun that you can imagine that there's a whole other world out there in this crazy Aria dimension or whatever. Um, but it's, as you say, it's not important fundamentally for what this show is about, because all that's important with that is Reiji and who he is as a person. And you learn that through what he says and what he does. 
And again, Reiji is funnier because we don't know yes. all that. And it is abstracted. And the most in-depth look we get at that dimension is through crayon children's drawings over silly music. That's fucking great. That is a commitment to the bit that I love. Yeah. And then when you do finally see that in episode 25, you get the one shot. Like, it kind of looks like those crayon drawings, right? It's, like, covered in these, like, very beautiful, <laughs> yes. like, pastel flowers with, like, bright oranges and pinks everywhere. Um, I like that that it it you know Reggie's you know a little bit off on his artistic skills, but he was trying to represent the right thing with his crayon drawings. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked about Reggie. We've talked about. Is there anything else you want to say about Say before we move on to some side characters? Because I think I just want to break down some of the characters now. Yeah, I mean, all I'll say about Say is I, I I love him. That little dorky, little goofy boy. I mean, it's just he's so like the heart of the show that it's. It's, I guess we'll get into it when we talk about the ending, but the, I feel like the ending hits really hard because you because he's this like precious little kid and, and you see how much he has grown as a person over the course of the show. Um, that is like really what the show's like, where its true heart lies. Um, and, yes. and it's just very effective. Like you just fall in love with the kid immediately. I don't know how you couldn't. No, he's great. He's perfect. When he does late in the series, he gets hypnotized and starts reciting Amaro's dialogue, and Mao is like, "He's on episode nine. Yeah. Um, that is that is maybe the hardest I laughed at the whole show. Um, it's very funny. Yeah, that's definitely like top three jokes in the show easily for me. And particularly, I think my favorite moment is when he does all the episode nine stuff, and then Niels and them are starting to talk, and you see more die hear more dialogue in the background. He's just like, Machilda-san, and stuff like this, yes. and then it cuts back to him, and he's just doing the salute with this, like, Amro-looking expression on his face with his eyes closed. That's the that's the punchline that hit me super hard on that joke. So good. All right. Uh, Say's mom, as I said, has got it going on. Yeah. Um, I want my cover of the song Stacy's Mom, but it's Say's mom. Um, cause she is great. She is, she is, someone asked me on Twitter a couple weeks ago, like what woman in Gundam do you have the biggest crush on? And I really didn't have an answer cause they're mostly it teenagers. It's Say's, it's Say's mom. mom. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's Say's mom. Say's mom. Absolutely. I will. Uh, yeah. She's great. I love Say's mom. Yeah. It's, it's, so this is what, this is the fourth character we've talked about on this show ta- played by Koto Mitsuishi now. So she was, she's Misato in Eva, both the original TV show and the movie. So we just talked about her uh, basically last episode of, of Weekly Suit Gundam, or Weekly Genesis Evangelion, I guess. She's also Tanya in After War Gundam X, and then and they use this in um, this show for a brief scene. She is also Ramius in um, Gundam Seed. Right, yes. Um, and but this is one and then like you know i always have to mention it because it would be absurd not to mention it she's fucking sailor moon and sailor moon you know it would be like talking about a show that masako nozawa shows up and not mentioning oh and by the way she's goku it's like it's fucking sailor moon um uh and so she's like a great like legendary voice actress this is my favorite role she's done like i just this character is so fun and so full of life and there's something like i think it's like the mark of how of the show that like it spins like so much love and energy on the main character's mom and like she's this very active presence in the show and it's not she doesn't have like a big character arc there's not like a big dramatic thing connected to her like she's just a pretty active presence in the show similarly to china and i feel like i really love their pairing and a lot of that early stuff of her trying to hook her son up with china and like so through the door and all that (laughs) stuff and it's just yeah she's just this very like attractive character in the sense of that she's so happy and funny and she cares so much about her kid 
um it's just she's awesome like it's i don't even know what else to say about it it's just the character jumps off of the like screen so powerfully it is just so vibrant um that it's she's just great she's probably the best version of the cool mom archetype i think yes. i've ever seen in anything uh-huh. because she gets to be a cool mom but that means she's also kind of a dork and i love that yes. she's just kind of a dork sometimes she's trying to get china and her son together she's you know she'll embarrass him a couple of times she also has like the mom kind of overreactions it's not really even an overreaction but when she comes to their room and ina is staying there and it's uh-huh. just like and I just love that Say answers the door and then Isla comes out in a bathrobe and it's just that immediate like, what the fuck? And it's just, it's you know where it's going, but it is so much fun. Um, she's a great character through the whole show. It's a great character design. It's a great vocal performance. Um, I love her whole, you know, interplay with Say. It just feels very like lived in, like uh-huh. you can feel the life these people have lived and will live through that character. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's really critical that she personally is not particularly into the Gunpla stuff, right? Like, she's yeah. vaguely familiar with it because she's married to the guy who's the runner-up of, like, the previous world tournament or whatever. And she runs the—she basically runs the shop. I mean, Say clearly is the guy who he makes all the models. He when People have questions. She's just like, hey, Say, can you come down here? I love some of those early scenes. like— can you come down here and answer this question about what the fuck this shit is? Because I, I don't know. Like, I don't I don't know what an ah guy is. What What's that? Um, but, but like, but she's never dismissive of it anyway, right? She's, she's, she's not a part of that world, but she understands like why, why they love it, right? It's like, she understands the value and the importance of that hobby, um, and never like dismisses it or shuts it down in any way while, but she's also not participant in it. Like there, you know, she's not, you don't have in that big, I think it's what is it, like episode 22 or 23, where you have the big montage of the Gundam fair before the, the last like fight and all the characters are making their new gun plot. That's where like Miss Sazabi comes in. She's not making her own gun plot, right? Because it's just like, she's an adult woman. She's not into it, whatever. Like she's lived a whole life. She's married and has a, like a 14 year old son. Um, she, I think she probably knows what her interests are. And I, I just love that the show lets that be what it is with that character. As you say, it's very lived in and it feels very real. And it's just such a natural extension of the show. And so often in series like this, the parent characters are either like they're barely present or they're just like mysteriously absent and nobody ever comments on the fact that it's like, like, do they ever mention why Yugi has a grandpa, but where the fuck his mom and dad is? Like, is well, that ever okay, the mo- Yugi does have a mom. In okay. the manga, Yugi's mom appears several times, but she is such a minor character, she never appears in animation. So that's why most people don't think Yugi has a mom, because it is so minor, they cut it from the adaptation. Yeah, and, and that's, like, super common in, in this kind of series, is to just, like, I don't know, the parents just don't exist. And it's fine, because, you know, you have to, like, you know, make your choices on where you want to spend your energy with your characters, but there is something that it always feels better to me that if you can find a natural space to do it, you need to address the parents because if you're a kid, like your parents are a massive, massive, massive part of your life and who you are in relationship to them is very important. And yeah. so finding the space to like have say's parents be like really in big parts of the show, I think is really important to what the show is doing. Yeah, if you have a parent on this kind of show, it's almost always the grandpa Yugi archetype of it's the person who's, like, super into the thing and, like, gives you exposition and lore. And instead, they give that to to Mr. Ral, and then, you know, Say's mom just gets to be his mom and her own person. And that's great. Yeah. And I love it. Um, And I love 
Yes, I, I love her too. Should we talk, should we talk about? I don't want to make it weird, but you just have to say it. Yeah, she's she's great. Uh, should we talk about Say's dad while we're here and finish the Iori family? Yeah, so so good old Takashi Iori. Now, Jonathan, do you know what I meant when on the previous week's yes. Stuff uh, podcast episode when we had a listener question that asked, if you were could play a character in Gundam, what character would you be? And I said I would be Takashi Iori because, yeah. You would be the guy who abandons his wife and child to go <laughs> around the world. I mean, here's the question. Is he a deadbeat dad? Because I kind of think he's a deadbeat dad, but he's so lovable you can't hate him for it. I don't know if he... I wouldn't say deadbeat because his job is he's an international gunpla battle referee, right? So his job, he's just like... he For his job, he has to travel a lot. Like he's... But... But he's also an idiot who comes back to yes. Japan in the middle of the tournament, goes to the shop, finds that his wife isn't there, and just sits there eating ramen for a couple of days until it finally occurs to him watching TV. Maybe they're at the tournament my son is participating in. Maybe I should go cheer him on. It is one of the funniest scenes in the show, but also he's kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, he's he's the, it's that kind of thing where you're just so into whatever your hobby is that you might be a little like scatterbrained on other yeah. facets of your life. No, it is. I mean, yeah, like I can make jokes about it, but I love him. I love that there is this sense that even if he's not always around he and Say have this really tight bond. Like, there's episode 16, which is definitely a contender for my favorite episode of this show. I think maybe that or, like, the final two. But episode 16 is the one where you meet Takeshi Yori for the first time. And he that's the one where Reiji goes off. And he's... It's like, this is the closest we get to Reiji and Say having, like, a falling out. It's just that Say wants to build his gunpla and doesn't want Reiji to touch it. And so Reiji goes out and goes to the model shop. And Takeshi Iori is there in a beard and disguise. Yeah, and he, he just basically looks like a classic movie hobo, which is great. And he's yes. just, like, hanging out in a gunpla store. And he gets uh, Reiji and Aina in a room together and teaches them how to build gunpla, which is where you get the like the fullest like tutorial on gunpla in uh -huh. the show. Like then he's like, always make two cuts, you know that kind of thing. Um, and I just love that whole one. And I also love that the ending of it is say realizing his dad was around, and there isn't like this big bitterness and conflict over his dad not coming to see him. It's just this sense you get that like. When they're together, they probably spend a lot of time together, and he is a good dad, and then he does have other stuff to go do, and it's just the dynamic their family has, and you don't, you could judge it, as I was saying, you could make jokes about it, but you don't judge it because the show presents it as, like, a status quo where everyone is satisfied. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I think that's a good point. I really love the ending of that episode where where Neji shows him the nippers or whatever and says yeah. like, but those nippers, those are, and then he pauses for a second and he's just like, what are you talking about? It's like, oh no, it's nothing. And he smiles and then he looks, you know, later he's like out on the balcony or whatever. He looks up and he like says, it's like, hey dad, you were there or whatever. Um, and yeah, you, you get the sense that they have this very warm relationship, but also there's like this trust, right? That like, because cause Say is also, you know, he's he's 14 or 15 years old. Like he, he he's growing up. And so there's this like thick like they, it like there's this implicit like loving trust I think between the two characters. And I think it is interesting that he and his dad barely interact in the whole show because he's because Takashi's not like super present. He's there in that like episode sixteen. Then he pops up near the end of the series a little bit. But like the most direct interaction they have that's like dialogue that's not them like in the montage in episode twenty three. Um, where they meet, but it's just at a big montage. There's no dialogue. Is in the last episode when Takashi shoots the big cannon to kind of open up the path for Sei and Neji to go destroy the crystal, and he like and Takashi says like go on, you know, so, like say you can do it. 
um and that's it and and but you still get that whole feeling that there is like this whole family dynamic that exists underneath those characters you just don't need it to be spelled out for you as an audience absolutely Okay, so the other characters kind of in their family circle, we have China, we have Incho, the, the class rep is yes. what he always, what's what Say always calls her, the the most adorable romance in all of Gundam. Um, yes. It's it's what Frau and Amuro should have had if Amuro wasn't a weirdo and they didn't have to go fight in a war. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like one of like the most charming, heartwarming, like middle schoolers having a romance. Like it's the most realistic, like too naive, like, 14 year olds dating I've ever seen in a show yes. right like it's just this very wholesome they're very awkward they don't clearly have like any idea like what a like romantic relationship is in that kind of more like intimate sense it's just like they really like each other and they have a crush on each other and it's mutual um and that's it and I, I just love the way that they play that relationship in this very like sort of quiet subtle way and they're just kind of there for each other throughout the whole show um, China's voiced by uh, Ishikawa Yui, who I talked about very recently on on Weekly Stuff podcast, because she is the voice of Violet Evergarden in Violet Evergarden, um, and she's also the voice of Two B in Near Automata. This is a very different kind of performance. From I would characters. not have recognized that. Yeah, yeah you, I would not have known if I hadn't looked it up, um, because she because she plays a lot of more kind of like severe, kind of like stoic characters like a Two B, um, and this is more like a cute little like you know like class representative librarian kind of like bookie girl um but yeah she does a great job china and china's role as the sort of straight woman in a lot of the comic routines i love because i think maybe my favorite joke in the whole series is the exchange she has with ron morale in the car where she asks him how old he is and ralph says that he's 35 <laughs> years old and there's like this perfectly timed comic beat and then her glasses go like in you know like turn white or whatever like gendo in neon genesis evangelion you can't see her expression she just goes huh he says what is something wrong no i i think that's very lovely is basically what she says <laughs> then it cuts away and that might be the hardest i've ever laughed like mostly because like the joke itself is very funny because robert Rao in the like the official fiction of Mobile Suit Gundam, that dude is supposed to be 35 years old. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense, but that's what it's supposed to be. Um, but then Sheena's like reaction, which she has a couple of jokes like that throughout the series where she just has this very sort of flat reaction to some absurd nonsense that's just been said. Um, she, she plays off of those incredibly well. I'm laughing very hard because I'm just remembering that scene, and yeah. it is it is it is one of the best jokes in the show, 100. percent It's so good. So let's talk about him. Let's talk about Mr. Rao, yeah. the masterstroke of this fucking series. I mean, Sean, what I would give to be a fly on the wall in like the writers' room where they came up with this idea of like, what if we had a character in? Okay, we need a character for Gundam Build Fighters who is like the old Gundam fan, he knows Gundam, he can give a lot of exposition while the characters are fighting. You need that character. Like, he's kind of the Grandpa Yugi of this show, right? Yes. Yeah. We need that kind of character. Who should he be? Should, like, maybe should Say have a Grandpa? Should it be Say's dad? And then someone says, what if there's a guy who just has decided that he has built his entire personality around emulating Ramba Rao from the original Mobile Suit Gundam? And everyone's like, that's a great idea. And then someone said, could we get Masashi Hirose? to do it could we get him to voice mr ral and they're like oh my god and they do it 
and it is so fucking good. It never gets old. It is the source of a million great jokes, including him being buried in the sand under a <laughs> Zaku sand armor, which someone else had to build for him, which is my favorite thing about that yeah. joke. Um, what a fucking brilliant idea this character is. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I have a slightly different read on the characters. My read on like what that conversation was was like they had this, oh this Grandpa Yugi character what is it? And someone just said, well, what if it's just Ramba Rao? And they're like, <laughs> what do you mean like someone who's obsessed with Ramba Rao and is kind of modeled? No, what if it's just Ramba Rao? What if Ramba Rao just is that character? Because I don't think it's some dude who's obsessed with right because nobody ever mentions in the show nobody comments on the fact that this guy is just raw morale he's just raw morale and in the like last episode um in when they're in the audience tagashi iori turns to him and just calls him ramba it's he's not <laughs> ralson he is literally ramba fucking ral and that's it um and and yeah, and he's voiced by Masashihiro Se, who's the voice of, of Rama Rao in the Mobile Suit Gundam, as well as he played, like, a bunch of, like, you know, one-off characters in, like, After Gundam X and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, I, like, the character to me is this incredible, like, as you say, stroke of genius, where he, the fact that he, his existence is not something that is, like, commented on or remarked on by the show, like, puts him in this, like, in, like insane position of a character right because you have other characters that like cosplay as different figures of friend gundam it's a pretty common thing the show does of like hey here's this random dude in a gundam x in like one scene in a tournament and it cuts to the cockpit and he's dressed like jameel neat but it's always someone that's dressed like jameel neat it's not just jameel neat this motherfucker is just ramba rao and that's it so okay, so so my interpretation, and this was basically because of the Ragey ep the episode where Ragey meets Mr. Fellini in that bar where Romorel goes, and yes. then there's all the other people pretending to be Zeon soldiers. And so I just thought this is like a club he's been a part of for all his life, and he pretends to be Mr. Ral. Your uh, your read is that at the moment Romorel dies in Mobile Suit Gundam, he actually falls through a portal to our world and decides to just live out his days as a guy playing gunpla. So, so I guess here's the point where I should just explain. This is this is my mental explanation for what Gundam Build Fighters is. Gundam Build Fighters, to me, and eventually I'll make a like five hour long YouTube video that's just called "The Ending of Gundam Build Fighters Explained" or whatever um, on YouTube, or like 13 things you didn't know about Gundam Build Fighters. Um, but to me, Gundam Build Fighters is a show that is set in Gundam Heaven. This show takes place. <laughs> this is where Gundam characters go when they die. And my evidence for this is threefold. One is that the show itself is like the ideal version of the Gundam world, right? Where you get to enjoy Gundam without it ruining everything about your life, right? It's not about war. It's not about trauma. But you get to have the... I mean, they're not technically giant robots, but they feel like giant robots when you're playing the game. And you get to have them and fight them and have fun with it. And that's it. And it's just about fun and loving technology and all this stuff and having a good time with it. My other piece of evidence is Ramba Rao in the show is just Ramba Rao. Nobody comments on the fact he never, he doesn't have a past or a history that's like divergent from Ramba Rao. People call him the lieutenant. He's the blue giant. He's the pilot of the goof. Like this dude is just Ramba fucking Rao. And then my real evidence is episode 23, which is the big fair episode um, where before the last battle of the tournament, 
there's a long montage. And in that montage, you see characters throughout the history of Gundam from almost every Gundam show that they are typically characters that have died really tragic deaths. Um, and they are there together. And it's usually like pairs of characters having fun making Gunpla. And you see like Kai and Miharu from the original Gundam are there and they're making Gunpla. There's Haman Karn and Shar and they're making a Gunpla. Uso is there with his mom and dad and they're having a fun time making a Gunpla. And it's just like there's dozens of characters in the backgrounds of those shots that are characters from other Gundam shows that have died tragic deaths. And it's, a lot of them are like romantic or family pairs. And they're just happy in a way you have never seen Gundam characters get to be happy making Gunpla. And that leads me to believe that Gundam Build Fighters is set in Gundam Heaven and that Reiji is an angel and that's what the other dimension is like. That's like a higher plane of heaven where the where like divine beings are. But this is where like mortal souls go when they die and just get to have a good time. That is my grand theory of what Gundam Build Fighters is. Gun to my fucking head. I would not have guessed this is where this was going. Um, this is my new favorite moment in the history of our podcast where Sean just lays out the most insane fan theory I've ever heard. It is it is convincing though because I noticed all the characters around and I just assumed it was very good cosplay. But okay, you're laying down that this is Gundam Heaven. Um, this really does feel Sean like a video you should make on YouTube called uh -huh. "You Won't Believe Gundam yes. Build Fighters Fan Theory." Gundam Build Fighters Fan Theory blows the doors off the franchise. Yeah, yes, very much. But 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 so you know, obviously I'm mostly joking about. I'm mostly joking, <laughs> not entirely joking about that Gundam Heaven thing. Um, because I do think there is something about it that it, it does just sort of feel that way. The, the way that, yeah. like, this is where people get to have fun with Gundam and you have all the goofy Gundam characters there. But it is, like, like I've got to, I have to legitimately say, I just don't read the Rambo Rao character as anything other than that. This dude's just Rambo Rao. Like, I can't, <laughs> like, he's, he's never been younger than this, right? Like, this character just for existed, and he has his fucking, like, blue sweater with, like, the pink garden again he has wrapped around his neck, which is the funniest fucking costume to give this old dude who's, who's Rambo Rao. Um, but he's just exists fully shaped and fully formed in this world as this bizarre anomaly that he is just that character, Rambo Rao. Um, and he is the best character in the show, and it is just like unbridled insane genius the idea to have this character exist it, it, i don't know how high they had to have been in the meeting like what was going on <laughs> what they put in the fucking coffee before they went to the meeting room to have this idea but the fact that they do it and they play it totally straight and i think the reason why it works is because nobody comments it on it right say never finds it weird that there is a guy that has committed in your reading jonathan so fully to the bit that he has <laughs> changed his fucking name to be Ramba Rao and he has the facial hair and he only ever pilots goose and all that thing and he never says it's like man you sure are like that character from Mobile Suit Gundam huh you must really like Ramba Rao nobody says anything like that to him this he's just Ralson it, it's pretty perfect and we also have to shout out the wonderful Masashi Hirose it is yeah. a magnificent performance because it's such a great turn in that it sounds like Ron Burrell. Like, I recognized uh -huh. it when he started talking. Like, did they get the... I mean, he sounds much older because he was when he recorded this. And I think that is part of why it works also as he leans into the age a little bit. Um, but it's Ron Burrell. You can hear it. But it's also such a funny version of it. And, like, his comic timing is off the charts. And there is something sad. This is the last full role he voiced. He's still alive, mm -hmm. but he... I guess we'll talk about this more with Build Fighters Try. But, but yes. he retires... 
um, for for illness related reasons we don't know and is is replaced. Um, that's also why you do not hear him in Gundam: The Origin. Um, there's a different yeah. person doing Rambaral in that. Um, but man, as a swan song, it doesn't get much better than this. It's a great performance. Yeah, and you can just feel how much fun he's having with it um, mm-hmm. because he just gets so many of the best scenes in the show because he gets to occupy that position you need of the character that when there's like a fight going on, it cuts to him or like it'll cut to a character that'll say some ridiculous, and this is why by you channeling the Plavsky particles in this way, like we'll like destroy the build strike in a second. And then it cuts to Ral. And even though he couldn't have possibly have heard what this character across the room <laughs> said, he says, that's not true because actually the absorb shield will blah, 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 right? And he gets to give the big speech and then he'll like throw in some sort of like reference to a Gundam quote in there at the end as he always does. Um, it's, and it's, it's great. Like every line of dialogue he has as a character is so funny, whether it's the, like, everything comes down and he's just like a goofy old man who has a crush on Say's mom, or he's like battle hardened, like taking everything 110% super serious about like, and delivering some hard wisdom about the nature of model building and shit like that. Like the whole spectrum of the character is so perfectly portrayed. I think my favorite moment when he does a Rambaral line is when he's trying to come to the tournament and he wakes up late and he's running to the bus stop going, Rambaral forgot to fight in the middle of a fight. Yes. <laughs> I died. I fucking died. It's so good. Yes, because they do, they always wait for like the best possible place to drop the quotes. Um, yes. yes. And that's probably the most inventive one because it is a really like... It's a very Tomino-ass line from the original Gundam when he says that, like, today, Rob Burrell forgot what a fight was in the middle of a fight or ever. Like, you phrase, translate and phrase it in English. And just throwing that in that moment, very fucking good. I love it. I love it so much. Okay. There are a bajillion characters on this show. I don't think we can do a deep dive on all of them unless we want to do another Eva-length podcast. <laughs> but who would you like to talk about? Um, who's your... Uh, let, let, let me start here. I want to ask... Yeah. Outside of that main circle, who's your favorite character in this show? Uh, Fellini. Okay. Outside of the ones that we just talked about, Fellini is probably like the other one. Either him or Isla, because um, Isla is probably like a more important character on the show. But Fellini, you know, it's we get Mr. Bushido himself, Nakamura Uchi, coming back very quickly to Gundam um, and playing Fellini. Because Fellini, I think, is the other character who has a bunch of like the best jokes. Because I think my other... So my top three favorite jokes in the show are definitely... It's it's the I'm 35 years old what scene. It's it's Ray or Say's whole like having to quote the whole like all 43 episodes of Gundam because he's been hypnotized. That whole sequence is fucking hilarious. The other one is pretty early on. There's a scene where there's this like very attractive woman sitting at like an outdoor cafe, and then the like waiter comes over with a platter that has a uh, he's got what is it? I think it's the X Gundam on it or no he's got the V Gundam the original V Gundam from Victory Gundam not the V2 and he puts it down and he says your gunpla madam like like this this is what you ordered and she says like I didn't order this and he says it's compliments of the gentleman down there and he points and it cuts and you see Fellini sitting there with like sunglasses on and then he comes over and says I made this gunpla for you because I thought only the V Gundam is the most beautiful and elegant and exquisite but simple design um, that expresses your elegance and beauty um, and she's very t- taken by this romantic gesture of someone sending her a fucking gunpla like it's like this like expensive wine and then he gets a phone call from Reiji or someone and on the 
phone. He's like, you can't interrupt me right now. I just spent hours building this gun plot trying to pick up women. And the lady overhears it and like throws her drink in his face. <laughs> that whole sequence, just the thought of the like James Bond-esque thing of ordering like this champagne or something and sending it to this woman. But it's a fucking very beautiful gun plot of the V-Gun for Victory Gundam is so unbelievably funny and Fellini has a bunch of moments like that like when he gets drunk at the party and shit like that that I just find hugely funny yes Fellini would be my runner up for this answer I'll tell you my answer in a second but let's stick on Fellini the Italian dandy himself yes I mean I love how the actor mixes in little pieces of Italian here and there uh-huh. it's great I also think his Gundam the wing Gundam Fenice is yes. my favorite of the custom Gundams I like that's the one that I want to build the, the bear yeah. guy but I also want the specifically the wing Gundam Fenice something or other that he has in the final final episode that is the final upgrade is so good it's another italian word he puts on there um but i love the green i love like how it mixes with the original wing gundam design um i love all of the stuff with him fighting i think he is maybe the best representative on the show of the ridiculous hyper reality of this world Uh that he is like he's the italian dandy he's the guy who picks up women and everyone loves him and he's a fucking rock star from italy and what he does is he builds plastic models and fights them in a video game like that's essentially the reality of this world and i fucking love it it's so good i love how far they push that with him and yeah it being that actor it being mr bushido perfect love it yeah, it's great. I'm with you. That Wing Gundam Finiche is my f- favorite Gundam Gunpla from from this. It's that, or I also really love the Zaku Amazing a lot. That's um, really and obviously good. Bear Guy San is up there. But yeah, the, and I I actually like the original Wing Gundam Finiche even more than the like kind of fully revitalized version from the end because there's something I love about the narrative you learn around it that it's like it's his like original Gunpla that he fell in love with, and he's just been like modifying, repairing it. For his like entire life and that's why it's got this really fucked up thing where it's got like two different eye lens colors like one's green one's red and the v on top like is kind of chipped off and it's got this whole like battle damaged thing but it's not because he painted it to be weathered or whatever it's because it's legitimate he's just been using this gun plot for so long and it's got the like you know, it's got this whole asymmetrical look to it that's very cool with the two wings on one side, which makes no sense, but it looks fucking sick when it's like silhouetted and it spreads out like it's a big cloak or whatever in his two different colored Gundam lenses like glow red and green. Um, it's it's one of the most radical redesigns in the whole show other than Bear Gaison. Um, and it's just a really gorgeous looking figure um, for a very cool character. And then I also have now remembered one of my other favorite jokes with Fellini is it's <laughs> a very early appearance of her, the character is when, you know, they have the whole early dynamic of he's the one who kind of trains Reiji how to be a fighter. Um, and then there's that moment where um, the, like, like Reiji runs up and the Fellini you later see has the same thing. And, and Reiji like runs up late to the fight or whatever. And he gets there in his fingers and only his fingers are like covered in bandages because of how much he's been playing Gunpla. And I love that it's just his fingers because it's like an old trope. That I think it dates back to at least Yu Yu Hakusho where Hiei does that at the Dark Tournament where he shows up really late and his whole arm is covered in fucked up bandages because he's like, I've mastered the fucking dragon of the darkness flame or whatever, like secret technique that if I use it, it'll, it'll take my life. And it's Reiji does that, but it's just his fingers and that's it. And it's a really great visual gag. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, I also love that Fellini has the whole relationship with Kiraran, the, uh-huh. the idol who is, I totally thought was going to be like a one-off character in that one episode with China, but then they bring her back and she is just the idol who's like there for yeah. all of the stuff in the second half. And she's really great. And I love that she and Fellini wind up having this like f- really mature adult relationship uh-huh. by the end of the show. It's like really surprising. It's really good stuff. Yes, yeah. It's uh, Felini's just a. It's just such a fun, joyful character. Yes, his his yes. relationship with Kirada is also a lot of fun. But my favorite character is Mao. I Mao makes me laugh so hard. I love that little boy to death. He is so such a funny like like I, I love the whole premise of him coming from this special school of gunpla, which is so ridiculous because in the lore of the show, gunpla battles have been around for, what, 10 years? Uh-huh. But there's already the Shingyon school that works out of an ancient pagoda and has an ancient master who would have been like 70 when this started <laughs> um, and has all these... It, it's I love that whole side of it. I love how he in he how he's so into like the building side of Gunpla um, and especially that Kansai dialect. Like that is the uh-huh. heaviest Kansai yes. I think I've ever heard in an anime character. Like if you've heard us talk about like Kansai dialects before and you've been like, I've never really spotted it, you'll spot it in Gundam Build Fighters because uh-huh. it's very heavy. Um, but I think it is just a great comedic performance and then I also just genuinely think the character is part of some really good stories. So he's the first one eliminated in the final 16. And that episode is fantastic. It's a really good battle. But I also love how they play everything with... They make that Mao's story. They don't make it say in Reiji's. And at the end, they just have this really nice little moment of him out by the lake crying because he lost. And it's not the end of his life, but, you know, he really wanted to win. Um, and that's really fun or it's a really it's not that moment isn't fun but it's really good to have I think in this show uh-huh. and then they have fun with the character after that being this kind of sad sack because Masaki-chan um, got freaked out when he tried to run into her arms and kiss her on their first date and so he's just she crying also looks her. like she's like eight years older than he is it's like very like I think there's a reason why it's like she's not just like making out with this like little boy like me Mao looks like reads to me as even younger than say is like he's like oh he totally looks like he's like 12 or something yeah I think I think my read on the whole Masaki thing is that she's like humoring him and being his friend yeah. not, uh-huh. not that they're actually gonna go like do it or anything that'd be a horrible crime um yeah I Masaki the, the dark and sordid that's you just don't even yeah I guess we should maybe now's the time to talk about the plot of Gundam Build Fighters Try no Gundam Build oh, Fighters so Try is, is not about the sordid relationship between Mao and, and Misaki it's Try because there's another character involved in the relationship but yeah <laughs> Okay, this is getting loopy, but yes, I love Mao. Yes, no, Mao, Mao is great. I love um, his I love his different mobile suits he builds. I love that it's all built around After War Gundam X, and the other best mobile suit to me that, that is made in this one is his one in the final episode, uh-huh. which is the Crossbone Mao X or whatever it is. I mean, that thing is fucking cool. Mixing a yes. Crossbone Gundam with the Gundam X, hell yeah. Yeah, the, I love with that one the way the like the skull on the chest like it like janks open. It's like it's not a smooth action. It like rifts itself open and then fires his giant fuck off Mao laser. Um, it's great. Yeah, no, Mao's awesome. I particularly love his relationship with Chinon, his his sensei, um, and and that whole scene in the last episode where Chinon comes in in the Master Gundam. Um, and that's where you get all the ridiculous G Gundam bullshit is incredible. And I I love the. Like, you have a couple of, like, moments where you see their kind of relationship where, you know, they're, they, like, make really dumb, goofy gunplas and then show them to each other as, like, this, like, haha, my is my gunpla better than yours? And they're, like, these ridiculous ones. 
um, like their little like kind of student pupil or student master relationship kind of thing. I I, I really love. Totally, and that scene you're talking about when the master comes in and he fights in the in the G Gundam with uh, with Rambaral and the Goof. That is my favorite action beat in the whole show. Yes. That is an, like they clearly saved some extra time and money to animate that scene and have Mr. Ral have his big fucking moment. It is so good, and I love that it's with the the master of the Shingyon sect of Gunpla. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But let's talk about Isla, because you mentioned her too. She's one of the best characters. One thing that I think is really impressive about this show is that it, you know it's a short show. It's 25 episodes. Every episode is pretty packed. But I like that they allow the Isla thing to be a slow burn. Uh-huh. Because Isla and Reiji meet, and we you continue that dynamic several times. Where they meet, and there's a short little scene of them having a misunderstanding. Or they're stealing each other's meat buns, which I know that sounds suggestive. They're actual meat buns. Yeah. Um, until eventually they're just becoming friends. And I really like that the show puts the time, like plants that flag really early so that by the time you get to the big Isla showcase episodes near the end, Isla's betrayal and then the one where they fight her and like help free her, you've seeded that ground really well and made it feel like an actual relationship that just evolved over a couple of weeks. Um, it's one of the more skillful pieces of storytelling in this show. And this show is all skillful storytelling, but it's very well done. Yeah, because because they meet in episode ten of the show, and their fight in the tournament is until episode twenty one. So yeah. yeah, it is a long build um, with that relationship, and yeah, Isla is uh, one of the strongest characters in the show. And and one thing I love about her is that she's I think one of the best depictions of the like broadly speaking the Lala Soon archetype, right? Like Isla's kind of a mix between the cyber new type thing, like a four or something. And then specifically there are multiple references to Alan B. Beardsley from G Gundam, because there's obviously a lot of G Gundam DNA in this show. Um and so the whole like kind of like um I forget what their ridiculous name is for it, but it's basically the Berserk system that she's in. Like Alan The Embody. Yes, the Embody system. Um, there's too many ridiculous the new type MTD new type destroyer blah, blah, blah. there's too many of those the Transam for me to remember all of them on off the top of my head anymore um, but yeah like her um, whole dynamic there is very much cut from that kind of cloth um, but I like that they take a little bit more of the Alan B approach where you get this like you get a real investment in her, the character and who she is and her relationship with your main character um, here Reiji so much and it it, you get the sense of like who she is outside of like the confines of the cyber new typey part of the character which i think is sometimes be a negative aspect of that trope is that you never get the sense of like who these women are as people you get you only ever get to see them as weapons which is what they're designed to be by the people that have like kidnapped them but it's sad that you never get to see the other sides of them and of course gun and build fighters being a much lighter show you get this sense of she the all her whole attitude when she's with team nemesis and all that stuff is entirely a put on and she's actually like this very normal young woman who like wants to go have fun and eat good food and like meet people and have and just have a good time and wants to be free and you get to see so much of that side of the character before you have the embodied system make her go crazy or whatever um and that makes that whole dynamic work so well and feel so rich it's because you know her so well before any of that happens yes absolutely 
She's great. I really love that they resolve her main arc a couple episodes before the end so that then you have a couple episodes where she just gets to be Isla. She just gets to be uh-huh. herself and she's with the group and she's part of their friend group and then she gets to be there in the final battle. She's there in one of my other favorite episodes, episode 23, Gunpla Eve, which is just kind of the hangout at the festival. She has a bunch yeah. of great scenes there. That's where she makes the Miss Sazabi, which is so fucking cool. Um, it's, it is a, it's a great character and one that they do a really good job seeding throughout the show. Absolutely. And and she's played by another actress that we have talked about a lot in recent episodes of the show because it's Haimi Saudi again. So it's Shinobu from uh, Kimetsu Yaiba. Um, it's, oh, uh, God, I'm blanking on the character's name from Gundam Age, but the little girl with purple hair that's Flit's uh, love interest from Gundam Age. Um, so she, this is the second time she's played the cyber new type uh, archetype. Um, and then, of course, also uh, she's Ayaka from Genshin Impact, if you've been playing. That's where I recognized her from, because I hear yeah. her uh, for about seven hours a day. No, I'm kidding. Uh-huh. I don't play Genshin Impact that much. But Ayaka is on my team, and I use she's like my main now. And so, yes, I hear that all the time. And I was like, and I knew, like, because I didn't look up the voice actors for this show. Um, and I'm like, I know I recognize this. But, yeah, I, I didn't put the face to it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yes. a great performance. It's a wonderful character. Um, the character with the best name in this show has to be Nils Nielsen, um, because that's not his only name. He is also the samurai boy, and he is also the, oh, what's the other early name? Early genius. Can, early genius. Not boy genius, the early genius. Uh-huh. I love it. I love Nils Nielsen. I love that his dynamic is he's basically Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. Where if you've yes. seen Enter the Dragon, it's Bruce Lee is doing the tournament by day, but he's actually there because he's like working with the CIA or whoever. And so at night he like does all his ninja stuff, like getting down, I know not literally a ninja, but like all the flips and stuff to get down and like investigate the different parts. There's like the scene where he is overhearing the chairman talk about Reiji is like directly a reference I feel like to Enter the Dragon, because uh-huh. um, he's even wearing like the karate gi, like the like the yes. white suit. Um, it's so funny. I love Nils. Nielsen and I like that his like he's nominally the character who like gets you near like the lore plot building with the with the Plavsky particle at the end but he's also just a fun silly character who has some really good fights he has the 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 Shogun Astray is, is the his Sengoku right? Astray yeah. Sengoku Astray it, oh my god great Gundam his battles with the the battle he has with Saiyan Reiji is one of the best in the show love me some Nils Nielsen Yes, Niels Nielsen is also the best like Gundam name, like Gundam character name in the show. Of like, of course, like the American character gives this like absurd name, <laughs> Niels Nielsen, and I love that the American character is this right. He he's the he's like obsessed with like Bushido. There's the great moment where he's introduced, where you get to that whole episode where you see he has the fight with Greco, um, who's voiced by uh, Kuroda, uh, the guy who voices uh, Kiryu in the Yakuza series. Um, and he fights him and like beats him in like one move or whatever, and it's this big upset. But you get to see the American version of a gunpla tournament, and it's like this big ostentatious thing, like professional wrestling with this big narrated introduction of each character. And in that with Niels, you find out that like I think it's his dad is basically Sherlock Holmes. His dad is some like super detective, and his <laughs> mom's like a black belt in karate and a math genius or something. And then they got together and had this kid who is the early genius. Uh, who like is both like an amazing physicist and like scientist boy but then also he's like a world-class martial artist at the same time which is like about the coolest and most absurd background you can backstory you can have for a character ever 
It's so good. And my my favorite piece of world building in the whole show is in the epilogue of episode 25. Yes. Uh-huh. Nils Nielsen goes with Caroline, his Yandere girlfriend, who takes him to the fucking ISS, the International Space Station, to make a new Plavsky particle so they can keep playing Gunpla. I love that in this world, the ISS is used to make Gunpla fucking great. Yeah. Why, and that, why can't like, we use the ISS for that? Yeah, that the, the world's like greatest genius. That's the thing that he's fixated on. And that, in fact, that like his whole character arc is that he initially is like interested in using Plavsky particles and all of that for the advancement of scientific research. And then eventually he learns that that's stupid. Like I should be using this to make like cool gunpla stuff and make it even more fun. Because what's the point of using it to make? Because if he went down his normal life path. Then, a hundred years later, Gundam Build Fighters are just turned into Gundam because someone would have found a way to make Plasky Particles be nukes or some shit. Instead, yes. it's just they're really cool, fun toys because the early genius slash samurai boy Niels Nielsen knows what's up. Yeah, maybe that does lend some credence to your This is Gundam Heaven theory because I can imagine the good uses of the Plasky Particle. It seems like there would be a pretty clear medical application for that uh-huh. of like doing surgery under the skin without having to like make cuts. I feel like you could do something with that. Um, but yes, obviously, uh, if Nils Nielsen had uh, worse uh, instincts, he could make quite a weapon out of this thing. So it's good that he went to the ISS just to learn how to play Gunpla better. <laughs> yes. Um, and then while they're talking about Nils, I do want to shout out uh, Carolyn Yajima, who's also, she's not like a big presence of the show, but I do love that character. I always love the, like, it's called the Nojo-sama character, like that archetype of like the rich girl who's just like ridiculous um, and, and always has a butler with her name Sebastian, which is great. You get the full name reveal near the end when Sebastian breaks down the door and she looks and says, Sebastian, you're here. Because for whatever reason, Japanese people think all butlers are named Sebastian, like it's a legitimate trope. <laughs> um, and, and, and then Carolyn Yajima is the centerpiece of what is my favorite episode of the show. I think pretty definitively for me is the Bear Geisson episode. I think is like just that episode is so perfectly plotted and put together um, in her whole role in that of she's like, you know, this incredible painter and artist or whatever. But she always gets second place to China because China's like more creative and open and free and imaginative with her art, and and Carolyn kind of does it by the book, and then that tying into the way that they make their gun plot. It's just a really great story. Um, it's a great really episode, great yeah. Episode, and then Carolyn Yajima is voiced by. I just want to mention it because it's another Genshin Impact uh, veteran because it's Chiwa Saito doing a very different performance, but in Genshin she's a Gene Doncho from Monstat. Mm. Um, as well as Shinjo Gahara and Bakemonogatari, one of my favorite shows. Very different kind of performance here. But I love her line read where in that episode, um, she interrupts Sei and Sheena when they're talking. And Sheena calls her Kero-chan, which is her like pet name for her. And she's, she gets very upset about it. And she says, no, my name is Carolyn. Caroline, it's Karolane. And she tries to speak it in like a native English pronunciation, but it is like even more absurd and ridiculous. It is a fantastic line read and I love it so much. It's so good. She's great. I love her stuff at the end where she call, she insists that she is Neil's girlfriend and then at a certain point starts calling herself his fiance. Yes. And Neil's just like, we've moved up? Because <laughs> like Nils never says no. He's just very surprised by it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's a great uh, dynamic. 
It's great. Also, I was. This has nothing to do with anything we were just saying, but I was flipping through some of my screenshots from the show, and I wound up on another line I wanted to mention from Mr. Ral, where um, they go to the ocean, and Ragey is swimming, and it's salty. And uh, Say turns to Ral and says, "Mr. Ral, is there an ocean that isn't salty?" And he goes, he just puts his like hand on his chin and goes, "Hmm, maybe in the colonies." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so good. All right, Uh, we talked about Nils Nielsen. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, all the different individual contestants are very good and, like, very vibrant. Obviously, the other big character from the tournament we haven't mentioned yet is Meijin Kawaguchi, uh, Tatsuya Yuki, um, who is a really great character. Like, obviously, he's not as funny or entertaining as all these other figures, because he is, like, the straight man of the show. But I really love how they play it, because I think at, at first you're almost like, is, are they going to be doing the, like, Char clone sort of thing here? And nominally, he's the guy who wears a visor. But yeah. other than that, I like that as we deepen the character near the end, his goal isn't to become like the unbeatable Meijin. It's to become the Meijin who inspires other people to have fun playing Gunpla. And the tragedy of the penultimate episode and then the inspiration for all the stuff in the final episode is saving him from that fate and helping him bring about that promise that he and Sei and Reiji made together. And I just love that we meet him in episode two. And we kind of plant that flag, and he's the final opponent in the end. And again, it's one of those things where you know the shape of it as soon as you see it, but that doesn't make it any less satisfying. Yeah, I think for for Kawaguchi, that's where like all the best kind of dramatic plotting and stuff like that in the show is. Um, yeah, because he's definitely not the funniest character, but there's a lot of really great material around him. Like what I just like want to point out, like where the the name Meijin Kawaguchi comes from, because it's a reference. So Meijin Japanese is just sort of like means like expert or master at something. The kanji then, is literally named person. So yes, yeah. Yes. So someone who's like famous, but specifically famous for being like the best at whatever it is. Um, then Kawaguchi is a reference to a real life person who's Katsumi Kawaguchi, um, who works at Bandai uh, the hobby in that in like the division that makes Gunpla. But he's very famous as being like one of the best gunpla builders in the world, and like he was like particularly like at the dawn of gunpla, he was famous for being, you know, like the way he customized and built gunpla figures. Um, so when you have the scene pretty early in the show where they kind of explain a little bit what the Meijin Kawaguchi thing is, they have like a silhouette of an actual like older Japanese man who is there. That's clearly it's supposed to be that is who the first. Meijin Kawaguchi was there's some character you'd never actually encounter who is the second Meijin Kawaguchi who's the guy who's like his whole philosophy is just win no matter what it takes and then he becomes the third Meijin Kawaguchi and yeah I think that that whole plot dynamic is really effective um at kind of dramatizing a lot of the themes of the show where you know Yuki's Tatsuya's whole idea is to try to kind of change Gunpla from the inside right and sort of join the institution to try to change the institution but it feels like it's like he's kind of misguided in that way because in order to do that, he's sort of abandoned fundamentally like like some of like his core principles. And you're introduced to that. And I think one of my favorite twists in the show is that very early on, this is like episode six, or it's the, the very end of episode five is when you get the twist and then six deals with it, is he drops out of the preliminary tournament when he had the promise with Saiyan Reiji. And that's like the first sort of story arc in the show is that whole dynamic of episode one you introduce Saiyan Reiji and the 
premise and the setting. Episode two, you meet Yuki Tatsuya and you sort of get this sort of like promise of, well, they get defeated by him at the end of that episode. And they're like, that's why Deji sticks around. That's why Deji commits is because he lost and saw how awesome Tatsuya Yuki was. And it's like, we, I want to beat that guy. Well, how do we find him again? Let's go to the tournament and we'll go to the tournament. And we'll beat him in the final round. And then right when they get to the final round, he drops out and you find out he became Meijin Kawaguchi. That, that whole twist is so strong and I think effective at taking you from that opening phase of the story that's sort of putting all the pieces in place. And that's where it transitions into now it's about the world tournament and getting on that bigger stage and figuring out why did he drop out of the tournament? What's going on with this character? And then all that pays off so perfectly in the last two episodes of the show. It's just a very elegantly plotted character, I think, throughout the series. And the whole Meijin Kawaguchi name, they're also like the idea of someone in the arts or or something who like takes a name down through the ages is a Japanese yeah. thing like you'll uh-huh. see this a lot in Kabuki particularly um, there's a there's a movie by Kenji Mizuguchi that deals with this called The Story of the Last Chrysanthemums it's one of his best movies and it's about someone who is supposed to inherit like he's someone someone the 14th would be like the next actor in this line and he winds up leaving and trying to go on his own path um, so there's a lot of like Japanese stories that deal with this and, and there were you'll, you'll read about like famous Kabuki actors who's someone someone the 15th or something like that right and I do love that now it's in this world it's applied to gunpla battles is very funny Um, is the timeline that the original Meijin Kawaguchi actually fought with gunpla or just built them because obviously gunpla is very new in this world in terms of battling I, yeah, I think the implication is that it is supposed to be Katsumi Kawaguchi who probably wouldn't have done any of the battling Right. And that, like, and I think that's part of supposed to be the dynamic is that when the second Majin comes in, that's why his whole thing is about it's about fighting and winning is because he's like, because he's also like the corporate guy, right? He he's like yeah. PPSE's guy that they bring in for their tournaments, and so his whole philosophy is just about winning no matter what. And then for whatever reason, then it has to get passed on, and and Yuki Tatsuya comes up because Yuki Tatsuya somehow he's both at like this normal high school with everybody else but he also has a backstory that he attended the gunpla academy or whatever i think they in japanese they use the word juku which means cram school which would be an additional school you attend for like additional lessons but the backstory seems a little bit convoluted and like not the way i actually care about um but it is very funny that he has this like simultaneous like i was both just normal i was the captain of the gunpla model club at this school or whatever but then also, I was really going to the Gunpla Academy with this guy from Britain uh, who he fights in, like, episode 18 or 19 or something. Yeah, in my head, there's, like, a spinoff of this show that's basically Yu-Gi-Oh! GX where they're at yes. the Duel Academy. Uh, I don't know. Is that what Build Fighters Try does? Because um, that seems like it would no. be fun. Okay. No, well, but yes, that would be a good idea. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! GX, but with Gunpla, I'd watch that, um, especially if they had a bad rap song opening. Um, <laughs> which is my main thing I remember about Yu-Gi-Oh! GX. So, yeah, um, no, good character, good name. I love the whole idea. Because I guess that also makes sense with PPSE probably, like, created the whole Meijin Kawaguchi thing uh-huh. as, like, a marketing thing. And then Yuki is trying to take it back. I really do like that those motivations are very well thought out. And it's a, it's a serious side of the show that works really well. Um, and, of course, their final battle is phenomenal. And in yeah. fact, are there? I do want to transition into talking about some of that. So, are there any other characters we need to hit on before we move on to some other stuff? I don't think there are any other characters, but I do just want to mention with with Majin Kawaguchi that he does have like some of my favorite models in the show, in particular. Um, so, so I think there's two model mobile suit names that are like the two best names because because you mentioned Miss Sasa before, which is like a great, incredible name. 
but there's also the Zaku Amazing, which is just <laughs> what a fucking incredible name. Like the choice to put Amazing after Zaku is just so great. And and the Zaku Amazing, that's one that I have wanted because I do not I have not made a, a a gun plot build of a Zaku yet because the one I want to do is the Zaku Amazing. It's my favorite design for a Zaku because I just it is it is I don't have like the red mobile suit fetish that you have, but. <laughs> the Zaku Amazing, I think there's something about the way that the black of the design breaks up a lot of the red that I think is a little bit too much for me in the Sharzaku, which I love the Sharzaku design, but but there's something that the black like is a little bit more striking. The fact that it's got these like two giant fuck off like revolver pistols is so ridiculous in this very like what you'd call Chunibyo way of this is like it's like trying to be cool for cool's sake almost kind of thing. Um it's just yeah. a fucking incredible mobile suit. And uh, Majin Kawaguchi has, I think, hands down the two best themes in the show in terms of music, uh, because he's got this like great like Spanish like Mexican flamenco guitar thing in his two kind of battle themes he has that just it's so good. Every time he has a big fight and his main theme starts playing, it's just the best fucking shit. And I, so he has the Zaku amazing, then he has the Kempfer amazing, which is also very good, but it kind of just looks like a, a Kempfer with some special weapons. It's a little bit, it's not a particularly different design. And then he gets the the amazing Exia mistake to put amazing in front of Exia in the title, but they, you know, everything can't be perfect. Um, but then he has in the final episode, you know, his amazing Exia gets fucked up and then he comes in with like basically the Exia repair more or less with like the big cape on it. It's just he gets some of the coolest fucking mobile suit in like gunpla moments in the whole series, um, and you, you gotta you gotta respect the fucking Meijing for that. Yeah, Zaku Amazing uh, one sounds like it should be the name of a Japanese rock band. Uh-huh. Two, definitely one I want to build. It's one that is also hard to find right now. I'm yes. looking it up right now. It is the price gouge on Amazon to seventy dollars for the high grade kit. Ooh boy, that's a lot. There's, yeah, um, there's a reason why I haven't made it yet. So yeah, I've been no. waiting to find a good price well, to get good. it. At. He also has, they do the thing with the Exia where it loses an arm and they put uh-huh. the cape on it from Double O Gundam. Yes, please, more of that. It's wonderful. It's great. Yes, Meijin Kawaguchi, wonderful. Um, and I think this is a good transition into the next part I want to talk about, which is, so so this show obviously very inspired by G Gundam. And I think it learns a lot of good lessons from Mobile Fighter G Gundam, including like G Gundam clearly paved the way for how you can kind of break Gundam tonally out of its original box, right? Yeah. And I think laid a lot of that groundwork that this show benefits from. But I do think there are three specific flaws from G Gundam that this show is very careful to, like, correct. I already said one of those, which is instead of fewer characters in more episodes, it's more characters in fewer episodes. That's a huge improvement. Yeah. Two is that the tournament makes sense. <laughs> it's just like the tournament in G Gundam makes absolutely no logical sense and is impossible to follow on the level of like rules it's not the biggest problem in the world but it is an issue with that show like especially me being someone who like loves like the Tenkaichi Budokai format like just give me a like top 16 top 8 top 4 top 2 that's what I want right um and they they just kind of go with that there is that middle section in build fighters where they're like doing the qualifiers but even there they make it much clearer that like it's seven events and you're gonna have points and then that gets you into the top 16 it's a little convoluted but it's totally fine and makes sense so tournament that makes sense just gives the show a much better spine and like forward momentum but the biggest thing is g gundam has many wonderful things but it doesn't have very good fights. There's some good action scenes, especially near the end. There's some great set pieces. I don't know if there's any one scene in Gundam Build Fighters quite as great as like Master Asia's death, right? Yeah. But 
but the fights in G Gundam are not very good, and the fights in Gundam Build Fighters are among the best in the entire series. Uh-huh. And that is like that is the piece de resistance is that when you get a fight in Gundam Build Fighters, I don't think there's a single disappointing one in the show. There are some that are like clearly like the best, but they are all good. And they are all reliably great. And they all take advantage of the fact that this is not actual Gundam life or death battles in space. It is plastic models battling. So you can just go all out. You can have Gundams losing arms and legs where if if Amuro lost the Gundam's arm in every episode of Mobile Suit Gundam, um, Captain Bright would have to slap him a bit, right? Uh-huh, like, yeah. That really wouldn't work. That You have to save that for special moments. But fuck it. The Star Build Strike, it's going to get fucked up every time it goes out. And it's just... Really spectacular, and I'm sure we can talk about specific fights that are our favorites, but you really can't go wrong. This show just delivers consistently extraordinary action set pieces. Yeah, because it's because it knows how to be able to tell its story through the action, right? Like, that's part of the point of them having an, a big action scene in every single episode, is that the episode is, like, focused around getting, like, to that fight and kind of setting up the dynamic of what that fight's going to be, either in a very explicit way with the tournament fights where you know it's going to be building up to this specific fight between these two combatants, or in, like, the sort of smaller side episodes that aren't focused on a tournament fight, you still are building up the character dynamics and the things like that that are eventually going to culminate in these characters um, fighting each other. And there's always a smart sense of there's a twist, there's a specific sort of like gimmick or take or something like that that the fight hinges on that gives it sort of definition and clarity, right? So like one I think that stands out to me is you have the big battle royale that happens early in the tournament um, that um, starts where you have the episode 11, the battle royale one, which is like, you know, all this kind of chaos and madness and it starts with them up in space and then eventually they get shot and they end up down on Earth and you have a great sequence with all the sort of like um, jilted ex-boyfriends of all the like women that uh, Fellini has cheated with <laughs> are all trying to gun for him and that whole dynamic is great. But then it culminates in the mega-sized Zaku coming out, which is an incredible set piece that then the next episode, episode 12, Discharge, is basically all about um, this fight with this giant Zaku, which I love is just because everything else is like that 1 to 144 scale. This is like a 1 to 72 or something scale Zaku, so it's not actually a giant Zaku it, because it's just a different scale thing but like because it's everything is shrunk down relatively more to what they're supposed to be it being a big zaku relative to the size of an actual zaku makes it look big in this like toy world i think it's just like a very funny idea and and so they figure out that's the only time they ever do something right like that right they never have another this is a fight against a giant mobile suit so they pick and choose like interesting set pieces and just play that set piece design it around that set piece um, and then have a narrative function behind it. So, like, why have the giant mega-sized model Zaku? Well, because that's when the chairman interferes. And so him being the guy up top, he has access to whatever resources he can. So that's how you can have the fight against the giant mobile suit in a normal tournament fight. You wouldn't be able to do that, right? And so you get the whole, like, the system trying to kind of push them down and keep them from winning idea um, and deliver that through the action. And they do that in every single episode, right? Like, one of my favorites, as I said, my favorite episode in the show, and I think one of the coolest fights is episode nine in uh, Wings of Imagination, where in that climactic fight, you have Bear Gaison fighting against the SD Night Gundam, and the whole thing being about 
the point of the episode is that Sheena's imagination and creativity opens her up to ideas that Say is struggling with because he's trying to figure out how to push the build strike to the next level, which eventually is the star build strike. Um, and he can't do that. And Sheena's imagination, which you see at the beginning of the episode in her painting, is also reflected in her on the way he approaches her gunpla, and so her sticking cotton inside the bear guy's on because that's what the setting is, is that it's a teddy bear that has like come to life and turned into a plastic like robot or whatever. Um, she has expressed that in a way that nobody else would have thought of, and then that allows her to win the fight in the end. It's like, that's such an elegant way to tell the story of that episode through a fight scene that the dynamic of the, that fight, the bear guy's on versus Night Gundam, is unlike any other fight in the series. And not every single episode is quite to that level of being able to do all that, because that'd be, like, impossible to do, because it's very hard to find that level of elegance and construction. But there are a lot of episodes in the show that are able to just so tightly narratively intertwine all those elements together. And that's the thing to me that makes the fights and the battles as good as they are, is that all that stuff plays off of each other so perfectly. Yes, absolutely. It's so true. Because, like, the choreography and the animation and the music and all of that is great. But it doesn't matter much without the story behind it and the storytelling and the character work is so good because the basic setup episodically the structure of the whole show is you have a first half of an episode that sets up those dynamics and then the fight is always paying those off right yes um and that's not like a new idea pokemon roughly does something like that only over a thousand episodes but like this show does it so well and with such focus and i think the last stretch of episodes starting with 17 which is when the final 16 like the main tournament bracket starts every single battle is so uh -huh. good and every one of those episodes is great and it's because at that point you're exclusively working with characters we know really well and you're often giving them their kind of final big story so episode 17 model of the heart is Mao's big like fighter finale he has other scenes past that point but this is going to be his time to shine and his fight very much reflects some of the character struggles he's going with in the first half of that episode same thing with Nils in episode 19 same thing with Isla when we get to like the two-parter that's about her um, and then you get to Meijin Kawaguchi and you have that that the Meijin versus Meijin episode which is so good you have the uh -huh. character Julian Ayers McKenzie whose grandpa got through the whole tournament basically just to kick him back into doing Gunpla again because he had walked away because Gunpla wasn't fun anymore. Uh, and we find out his Gunpla is a red F-91. Yep. God, Sean, could they make a mobile suit more for me than a red F-91? I mean, they. I think that uh, we sent our F-91 podcast back in time and then yes. you know, they, the makers of the show listened to it and they're like, well, we got to make this because in like eight years time, this motherfucker is going to watch this show and we got to make sure that there's a red F-91 for him. So yes, I yes. think that's what they did. But that one is a great character story about those two guys and, and especially about um, Kawaguchi, about Yuki yeah. is, is a really good episode for him. And yeah, so the fights are always... They're always fun. They make you want to applaud. They're just great things to watch. But then they also have such immense character payoff, especially down that home stretch. But yeah, in early episodes too, as you say, the Bear Guy one is, just if you want to break down the basic formulaic structure of the show, is as good an example of how that formula works as the show provides. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's, I think it's the, it is fundamentally the thing that makes the show as good as it is. Like, I think that that's the key, that, it, that it's the yeah. most important thing for it to nail, for it to be at the level that it's hitting at, at all times. And why it's like such a great example of like the genre itself is that that level of like episodic plotting is so tight and elegant um, that the characters, the themes, and then the like, 
the action core construction and all that all that dovetails together every single episode for a like really great rousing climax right and it's like most episodes of the show you get to the end of the fight and you want to like jump off your feet and shout because it's like really exciting and in that sports way right because it's not exciting because of like the death defying antics of the characters where you're like you know it's not a tomino show where you're like oh god is every single character going to die are we close enough to the end of the episode that that's going to happen yet um there's nothing like that it's the risks are just like you because for most of them you like all the characters so it's like you kind of want to you kind of are rooting for Mao, right in the same time you're rooting for same age because you like both of them and so that dynamic is very rich in the kind of the, the sports competition part of it um that you just you're rooting for people in the way that you know people are into like football or basketball or whatever will root for their team it, it's got that that core to it as well yeah are there any fights you want to shout out in particular? Other than, like, I want to talk about, like, the very end of the show. The last two episodes are so good, they deserve a little extra attention, but... Yeah, the last two else? are definitely, like, in terms of action, that's the highlight. I mean, that's where they, you know, they they budget the show very well to get that. Um, I do also, like, you have, in episode 23, you have that smaller fight between uh, Say and Deji that is very fun. It's really cool, yeah. Um, it, that's, like, a really good kind of, like, teaser or setup for kind of what the, the finale is going to be about. Um... You know, I also got to kind of go go back to my my boy Fellini that their big fight that at the end of the preliminaries that comes to a standstill where they, they get a draw oh, right and so they just good. rip each other each other's gun plot to shreds. It's a pretty fucking amazing episode because that's where you have that whole flashback sequence to Fellini building his Fenice and you realize that's the reason why it looks the way it has is because he rebuilds it every time um and and, and how precious it is to him while everything is getting ripped to pieces. Pretty fucking great scene. Well, and it's the most, like, shown in anime-ass thing yes. of, like, Fellini could just, like, let them win because he's already going to be in. And he wants Saiyan Reiji to advance to the finals because he's helped them and he's taught them and he wants to fight them. So he could just kind of give up and then Saiyan Reiji would go through. But Saiyan Reiji don't want to win like that. And Fellini is too proud in his Fenice to let that happen. And so they just fight to the fucking death. I, is that where we first get the, the like, build fist? Is in that one? Or build is that knuckle. later? The build I... knuckle think it that might be it i don't remember but it's yeah as you say it is very rousing um yeah i love that one um i love the it's a short fight but the one in like episode six where um they fight yuki yuki comes back even though he's become Uh maging just to fight them for fun and they get they get ripped to shreds they totally lose it's we really don't even see much of the fight but i love that the whole point of that is that it excites them it doesn't discourage them like that's Mm -hmm. the core character dynamic um, I already mentioned I love Mao's final fight. I think is really creative. I think Nil's final fight with the with the Sengoku Astray is fantastic. Um, yeah, they're at a certain point. It's almost not worth picking individual ones out. They're all so yeah. good. I, I got a sh- shout out. It's I don't know if you call it a fight, but the baseball match that happens. Uh, yes, yes. That, that's a pretty great classic. Like. Because it's one of the things where the show so I think it loves. You know, because we've mentioned Yu-Gi-Oh a lot. Like, the show is not one of those shows, kind of, because it's not 300 episodes long, right? Right. Because the reason why a show like Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon are going to have the random baseball episodes, or, like, I mean, literally Dragon Ball Super has the baseball episode in it, right? Where it's like, the reason why you end up having those is because you need the filler episode. Like, you, you just can't have the big dramatic plotting, either because it's based on some source material that you're adapting at the same time or whatever's going on. There are lots of reasons why those shows end up with the random one where you're like, why is there, are they playing baseball all of a sudden? 
Well, you say the, Dragon Ball Super, but that's because Yamcha becomes a baseball player in Dragon Ball Z that's a good point. in a filler episode in the Saiyan arc when they're just filling time while the manga is going. Yeah, and so it's like kind of a classic trope of those kinds of shows that just go every episode a week for years and years and years out of necessity. And I love that Gundam Build Fighters takes the time to occasionally do that kind of thing, not because it needs to, but because it's like fun. And it's like because it's doing it with such intentionality, it like plays better for me than it would in, if it was an actual filler episode. Because it, it also does like tie directly into the plot. It's not irrelevant in the way that a lot of those episodes can tend to be very irrelevant in those kinds of shows. So like that baseball one is a great example of that. And then also the the Gunpla Yakuza, like <laughs> traditional Japanese like Yokan episode is another great example of in a, another series, it would very much be a kind of just like random filler. But here it feels very special and fun because it's this you know, why does this traditional Japanese Nyokan have a gunpla arena like in the shed in the back? Like why are like why is this Yakuza heavy dude like happens to be this ex pro and he's just like, Yes, I'll beat you with my giant fuck off gunpla. Um like that the 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 warmth of heart and like the openness the show has to just do random one off episodes that have very absurd premises, even on the for this show that is based on an absurd premise, they're even way outside that, those bounds. Like those episodes also have really great like action and beats like that to them. Yes. All right. So let's talk about the final two: Dark Matter and Promise. Dark Matter, of course, is is pretty much all the one big battle between yeah. Meijin Kawaguchi and Saiyan Reiji, and it is such a phenomenal fight. Like obviously, there's the higher stakes to this one where. It's still not life or death, but it is that Kawaguchi is having his mind controlled, and so they want to try to free him. The fight is extra brutal because of what's going on. And, of course, you know it's good, because it's where they bring back the best goddamn theme song yeah. and have it play over the big final fight. Uh, yeah, in terms of a one-on-one -on -one match, it's the best one in the series. The choreography, the movement, the animation, it is tremendous. And then doing it over that theme song, which we'll have to talk about in a second, is, uh -huh. uh, is just tremendous. Yeah, no, it's great. The whole dynamic of them, of the, the chairman and Miss Baker changing the field as the fight goes on is a great dynamic. Um, and that has, you know, that has that big mid-episode turn of where they're, for the first half of the episode, they're just getting their ass destroyed by um, the gun and the, the Exe Amazing. Um, and, and then he has them pinned to the wall, right, with like the two swords. And then they kind of realize what's happening, that he's being controlled and they rouse themselves back. Um, and that whole thing of they like detach the one arm from the the build the star build strike and then yes, take but the they sword. Find it, yeah, yeah, they take the sword of the other and are fighting him Yuki with his own sword. And then later they get the arm back and put it back on and do the the double build knuckle with like the classic. You're like you have these two shots basically of zooming in on ones on Reiji's eyes. One's on Sei's eye, and they're intercut with each other every couple of frames. And so it's like flashing really quick as you're zooming into both of them as they do the big um, double build knuckle hit. And they make the legendary, absolutely legendary fucking choice to have one of the Gundam's eyes get blown off early in the fight. So it's got this like one eye, like you might as well put a fucking eye patch on the goddamn thing, like the H2 Darkhound in Gundam Age. Um, so it's only got this one glowing green eye for the fight just so fucking sick that little extra detail is where that's that's where you feel the Gundam Build Fighters team that's where they know what they're doing is it's not just we're going to have this really incredible action sequence also it's going to be this rad fucked up Gundam that only has the one eye throughout it 
Yes, absolutely. It's uh, seriously, Sean. I was like on my feet. I was like a little bit out of my chair. I was so close uh-huh. to the edge. I was like, ra- like when they won and they win the tournament, I was cheering. I was like applauding. I like was fist pumping in the air. It just made you want to like move physically. It is that effective and that affective on the viewer. Um, it's a really tremendous episode. And yeah. I do think that has something to do with using a theme song that you called out back yes. in your best of the decade episode. We actually used it as the theme song on that episode of the Weekly Stuff podcast. If you haven't heard it, there's an episode from late 2019 or early 2020 where Sean lists his 10 but really 50 favorite anime of the yes. 2010s. Build Fighters was one of them. And you call out that theme song, Nibun no Ichi. And I played it that week. I'm like, that's a really good song. And then I heard it with this. That is easily one of the best Gundam theme songs it is so perfect it is so fitting I like the second theme song in this show but it's very much a victory Gundam case where like the first theme song is just so perfect you just really shouldn't replace it um and it's use here in that final fight where they actually use the entire three minute track Mm -hmm. and the fight is synced to it like it's not just that like they laid it over it's pretty well choreographed to the rises and falls of that song um, but man, I love that song lyrically. I love that song just musically. I it, it got me pumped every time. I love the animation that goes along with it. It is one of the best theme songs we've had for Gundam, full stop. Yeah, no, yeah. Nibunuchi is just incredible. You know, I I love any J-Rock song that has a big rap breakdown in the middle is always yes. going to fucking, I'm always going to love. And I love that they make sure the rap breakdown is in the opening. They don't, like, do a version of it where it, they don't get to the rap breakdown or something, which sometimes happens. Um, yeah, so so actually both of these opening themes and then one of the opening themes in Try and then the theme they use in the Try, like, OVA, um, all, all of those are by this band called Back On. Um, that is a very good J-Rock band. Um, this, the second one from this show, um, which is the song Wimp, also has a female vocal artist, Lil Fang, from a different band who she's like on that track as well. But yes, Nibu Noichi, just incredible. It just like an all-time great like Shonen-style J-Rock kind of opening. And, and part of what I think pushes it over the edge for me is not just that the song's so good, but the lyrics are so on point. Um, that's, yeah. I think one of the reasons why it works so well in that scene in the penultimate episode is because the lyrics are about like two people working together and like compensating for each other's weaknesses um and coming like a, becoming a better whole so like nibu no ichi means one half um and it's you know any any shonen show that is going to start the theme song with this like pulsing drum beat which is true of every back on song they have like this really great core drum beat that really gets you pumped up but then you have uh the first lyric is the singer just like belting out the words hitori janai which means you're not alone which is just the most shonen just like immediately yes. it's like this is a song about friendship and togetherness and companionship and that overcoming the odds like that's just what the lyrics of the song are about and it's just so good like it's so wholesome and warm and 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 powerful uh, in this very kind of childish way that it's great. It's just a good, it's the perfect theme song for the show. It just represents the show kind of in a nutshell to me um, in every way. Uh, so yeah, Nibu Noichi. It'll definitely be when we do our rankings. It'll be somewhere on the best Gundam songs because it's definitely up there yes. for me. Yeah, it'll make it into my main list. It'll be very high on this like year three, season three list when we yeah. do that um, in contention with some of the best ones we've heard because it is, it is fantastic. Um the, the final episode, Promise, Yakusoku, does uh, a similar thing. It uses the second song, Wimp, 
um, very effectively. I actually think it's used more effectively in that episode than it is like as the theme song. Like mm-hmm. used at like full length on that final fight is great. But I love the final episode where it does this ridiculous thing where the Plavsky particles are like spreading across the arena, and so they all have to have their Gundams out and and have this big fight to try to go destroy the crystal that is now at the heart of an Abawa coup that has been summoned. And it's really just an excuse to have all of the different cool gunpla we've seen throughout the series come together and fight and it pays off because it is so fun to see all the different crazy things we already talked about my favorite moment which is where lieutenant ral gets in his goof and fights with the uh the g gundam but there are so many good beats in that and it is just a fun celebratory like it is gundam heaven basically it is just like a great celebration of all things gundam yeah yeah because that episode like the first half of it is just that giant action sequence that is just let's throw all the budget we've saved at the wall and just like do everything you can think of like the scale of the action is so absurd but yeah just getting to see everybody you know the bear guy son and the night gundam is there just miss sasabi comes in there's everyone joining the fight is so great and and i just yeah i think that it's just the perfect idea of we have had this whole show that is about like the triviality of this hobby itself being the point and all of these things. And then, you know, it feels very fitting that then the last episode is about, and now here, like this is the only time something actually serious has happened. Like this feels like it's dangerous. People could get hurt because this, this like these plastic particles are going out of control and we've got to stop it. And it's because of our bonds of companionship and friendship and, and the lessons we've learned about like stick to and gumption and all the good things you learn by doing the sport. <laughs> Um, it's, it has built us up enough to that we can use those um, and who we are to kind of save the day. And it's just a very kind of celebratory episode, right? Like that whole first half just feels like a big celebration of the show as a whole, as everyone gets their big kind of hero moment, almost like, you know, the end of fucking Avengers Endgame or something like that is basically the kind of scene they're doing. Yeah, it's, it is basically like the Avengers Endgame of Gundam, and it's very good. But then the show does find room for having a just incredibly thematically on point Uh conclusion in bringing it back at the end where there's a few Plasky particles left. Yuki Senpai is back to his old self. And so they're able to have one last match, but the particles are disappearing. So they're having their fight. And in that fight, the chairman disappears, which means that Reiji is seemingly disappearing. And so, of course, if you... If you've seen Yu-Gi-Oh, if the boy comes from out of the other dimension or the past or something, he's in the pilot, he's going to have to leave in the final episode. Uh-huh. So we're going to have to do this with Reiji. Um, it's totally predictable, but that's not the point. Predictable is not a bad thing. It is such a good version of this story in that what they really do and what Reiji shows, say, in that final fight in giving the controls over to him is that he has, like, one, I love Reiji's line about the reason you couldn't pilot so well is because you love your gunpla too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you've seen that everyone has that passion and so you'll be able to do it. And so Say is able to fight and is able to say goodbye to Reiji. It's beautifully staged. It's such a good scene. Um, and then, of course, we are able to end on a gag with with uh, Isla going with Reiji and calling him an idiot as they go off to their new life together in the other dimension. But it really just... It is amazing how what a good emotional core the show has built up and is able to leverage in those final minutes. Yeah, it, it's one of my favorite conclusions to a Gundam show because it is there's something so kind of beautifully fairy tale. It's like kind of Peter Panish almost like this whole yeah like 
the, the this feeling of oh the the particles are leaving right like we have these last brief moments of kind of like magic basically and then obviously you know the, the later you know the early genius goes to space and he reinvents magic for us so that we can continue to play our robot games but for this moment it's like this is the last this will be the last gun plot battle on on earth um and the way that everybody then rushes to go like like you know i mean because of course it's my boy fellini first he takes the fucking arms off of the gun of Fenice and gives them to a to say and reggie and it's how much you know it's been built up that these models are like this is these people's lives they've poured so much of like their blood sweat and tears into these things and the immediate like the immediacy with which they just like give up pieces of them to kind of put cobble together a a star build strike that can do the fight and the same thing with with uh kawaguchi um that whole dynamic is just it, it gets me a little bit choked up at the end of the show because of how much it like it feels like it has rewarded these like l- like these light but meaningful character relationships throughout the whole thing come to a head here and then the whole way they play off reiji like disappearing at the end where you know he hands off the controls to say i love that as say is fighting he's doing a really good job and there's this almost like manic look in reiji's face right like his eyes go wide and he's like yes good you're doing it like you can see it feels like he's like kind of like having to bottle up whatever like feelings he's having because he's also leaving behind his best buddy as he's going to his new world um and then he has to and then he of course he disappears right at the moment they're about to do their high five that they do at the end of all their like big fights that they win it's like it's just you couldn't have possibly no. put together that sequence better it's just it's just so beautifully done and, and pays off your investment in these characters um it's it's just such a memorable finale to the show it hits the heartstrings in every place you want them to be hit better than you thought they could be hit. Yeah. And it also, like, it, it actualizes one of the main themes of this and every other sports anime, which is that the act of playing and being challenged whether you win or lose is the actual fun part of it, right? Like, the heroes of these stories, they would like to win, but their ultimate goal is just to fight the next strongest person. I mean, that's also battle anime. That's also yeah. Dragon Ball. That's Goku, right? Um and they're doing it there at the end where everyone coming together and giving those different pieces is because they love the fight. They want to see this fight. They want to be able to do this, um, whatever comes of it. And it's just a really, really good version of that story. You know, a lot of these ideas are not necessarily like brand new and original to Gundam Build Fighters. They're just done so ludicrously well. And I like that fairy tale aspect of it too, Sean. It does have this like, you know, Reiji isn't actually an imaginary friend, but there is that kind of sense of like the yeah. imaginary friend or the fairy tale boy who comes in and kind of spruces your life up and then leaves. Um, it's just, it is beautifully done and it is tear jerking and it is affective in the way this show is just very affective. It gets you cheering, it gets you laughing, it gets you crying here at the end. Um, it is a Gundam show that is, is, and a sports show that is full of affect as this sort of thing should be but is honestly is hard to do at this level yeah. that this show is doing mm-hmm. it yeah because yeah. it, it is i think a big part of it is like the attention to detail you know because the, another thing they do in that scene that is so good is kila running off and grabbing a like video camera and her coming back yes. and her filming it like the last gunplot fight it's those little details that like make it so special because it's this thing where you you feel how much love and care the creators are putting into the show um that they're not while, while, like, you know, there is the big kind of genre formula that they're playing with, um, there is no formula for those little moments. Those are things that are so inventive um, that they're creating here that, that just very naturally spur from 
all these characters being together that it feels like as soon as Kira like runs off screen even if you haven't seen the show before and you don't know oh this is what she's going to go grab the camera I think you feel that that's what's going to happen because you just know these characters so well that this is what happens when you put all these pieces together because they built it so perfectly absolutely and then you have a very fun epilogue several years in the future everyone doing their thing with their ISS Plavsky particles yep um, and a great fight, and it just it also knows the exact moment we're going to end on, which is say stepping out at the next tournament on his own now, but with Reiji in his heart, thinking about the promise they made, and we leave it open to your imagination. Perfect ending. Absolutely, accompanied with with I do also really love the first ending to the show. I think is good, but I have a lot of love in my heart for Hanpan Spirit, or like yes. which is basically short pants spirit. Um, by Hyadain, uh, which is also the guy who does the songs, um, the two openings for Nichijou, which is a show I love. Like, it's one of the, I think, the best comedy anime. It's a very distinctive style, but the very, like, light and kind of, like, nostalgic feel to the song, I just love so much. And the way they do the ending on normal episodes, where they take, like, the freeze frame in, as, like, a screenshot, and then they, like, sort of um, age it or whatever, and then have the ending play around it is, is great. But here... That whole ending playing over the ending of the show is awesome. Well, it's actually really cool because, uh, well, for three of the four, they don't use the first ending, but three of the four get special uses in the final yes. two episodes. So you get Nibu Noichi over the final fight with Meijin. You get the second opening. You get uh, uh, Wimp uh, over the the big final battle at Abaku, and then you get Hanpan Spirit here at the end, and it's it's really well used. I like Hanpan Spirit a lot too. I think it it grew on me. I think one of the things it does that I love is that it really thematizes around the animation, too, in yes. a really great way. I love anime endings that do that. We talked about that with uh, the second Gundam Age ending does something like that, too. Mm -hmm. and it's But it's also like visually creative in the way like the first double O ending is. It doesn't look like other anime endings, or certainly other Gundam endings. So yeah, it's very good, and I think... The, the lyrics are, it's kind of like the, like Nibu Noichi. It has a really yes. great, like, connection to the show. And that whole idea of, like, this, you know, childlike wonder in things. Um, and putting that over the end, it gives it this extra um, impact it doesn't have just as the ending song that, you know, you see there at the end every time, right? Um, it's really good. The, the singer is so auto-tuned on that one, and I do like the way it uses auto-tune, but it's so auto-tuned, he actually reminds me of, like, the male Vocaloid in the Hatsune Miku games. Uh-huh, yes. Um, I, I even checked for a second, because I did not know the artist, I haven't seen Joe, and I was looking, I'm like, is that, is this just, like, a Vocaloid song? And it's not, but uh, it does, I do enjoy that style, it's very charming. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll post on Twitter uh, for this podcast because I just realized I, I probably should have done that before. But you should also watch the music video he made for this song um, because it is it is a great, very weird music video. But it's basically <laughs> like what the lyrics are about is like, you know, this childhood nostalgia. That's like that Hanpan thing is like the like shorts that like kids, you know, little boys wear and stuff like that. Um, and it's like about this guy like this old man way in the future like remembering himself being a kid and like these shorts he had that he really loved it's like this, he, there's like weird back to the future time travel shit in it it is like a wacky but fantastic music <laughs> video that people should watch um, but yeah it, 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 that like that childish spirit to the song is, is really well reflected in the show well and speaking of music the one big thing we haven't said too much about yet is the musical score by Yuki Hayashi which is stupendous. It it's is so, so good. good. Yeah, it is one so of the best unique. scores we've had in a while. Where like Gundam shows typically have very good scores, but it's been a little bit since we've had one that I, like I think is just like a great, great score. And this is like 
this is one of my favorite scores for a Gundam show. Like it's it's very different than most Gundams, um, but it's so fucking good. Yeah, it's almost on like a, uh, and he's worked with this person, so it makes sense. A Hiroyuki Sawano side of things, where it's uh-huh. very inventive with its instrumentation, how it uses electronic elements, the little vocal elements it brings in, like in the battle themes we have, where it's like people saying words over the music, which just really gets you pumped. Um, yeah, it's just like every track, and it's introducing great new pieces all the way to the end because it's twenty-five episodes. Yeah. It's not like you're going to have to go crazy with reusing things. Um, you know, Yuki Hayashi after this, when we already said My Hero Academia, he also scores High Q. Yeah. Um, those two alone, I can't believe one person does both of those. That seems like that would be a very busy job. Uh-huh. Um, but like, yeah, it, it makes sense that he he had done stuff before this, but really blew up after Gundam Build Fighters. And it makes total sense because, you know, um, of course you would. It's it's just that good a score. Yeah, and, and it's it's the thing I love. It is true of his other work uh, that I've seen is like he's just very eccentric with some of like the instrumentation and genre choices he makes. So, and I think it's something he kind of borrows a little bit from G Gundam is because you have characters from different places of the world. He'll throw in yes. like different musical styles and elements in there. All the um, stuff with Fellini where he uses like accordion and stuff. Oh, I love it. It's so, so good. good. Um, and then I think one of my maybe my favorite element is you have the song that usually plays at the very beginning of a fight that you have this countdown from five in the super gnarly distorted voice like embedded in the song it's like five boom 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 four and it just counts down to one zero and then they usually launch it's like there's so much like weird creativity it's just such a weird score um but then it also has like the big swelling, like big action themes at the end of episodes and stuff like that that you would very much associate with his work from My Hero Academia. That I think like is one of the like critical pieces that make that show work. Like if that score for My Hero was not as good as it was, it would be significantly like weaker show. Um, and and he brings a similar quality here of like when the music needs to be very important, it like nails what it needs so well. So I'm looking at his list of credits, and he's got so much cool stuff going on. He's currently scoring the Dragon Quest anime that's ongoing that I've mm-hmm. heard nothing but great things about. I need to watch it. Uh, he's doing the Shaman King reboot they're doing, right? Um, which I don't think has premiered yet, or it's about to premiere. And he took over Pokemon in 2019. Um, Pokemon had had the same composer from its debut in 97, and now the new composer, I think when they switched to the... Um, sword and shield version of the anime yuki hayashi took over so pokemon and haikyuu shows we've referenced a bunch in this discussion he's doing both of those now this is a busy fucking dude like that's a lot of very high profile stuff to be working on that actually this kind of music would fit so well with pokemon i Uh want to go see some of those episodes now i bet that that fits really well yeah (laughs) Um, i agree so yeah it's it's no it's a tremendous score and it's definitely it's one of many things that makes this show feel like a unique being and entity unto itself, you know? In the same way G Gundam, um, oh, what's his name? What's the composer who did G Gundam? Um, um, oh, geez. Uh, the, we love him. Spot. Yes. He does everything. Because <laughs> um, it's also the Gravity Rush Man. Uh, one Piece. Uh, Sakura Tyson Man. Yeah, One Piece. Oh, uh, geez, I should be able to think of this. I, uh, I Kohei Tanaka. It's Kohei Tanaka. Kohei Tanaka. Yeah. yeah. And we go. got to it at the same second. Yeah. Kohei Tanaka, like G Gundam just sounded totally unlike other Gundam uh-huh. scores, right? And and G Gundam is so driven by its score. It's still yeah. one of the best. And this very much feels like it's a very different score. It doesn't sound like G Gundam, but it's in that lineage of really just cutting loose and having fun with it. Yeah. It's it's yeah. fucking great. It's just it's like I said, like we've had some good Gundam scores in recent shows, but nothing for a while that to me has been like this. This is like 
this is this is one of the ones I think of when I say like Gundam has just just like incredibly great history with music. Like it's just as a franchise, <laughs> it's one of those things that you wouldn't necessarily ex- assume that the soundtracks for Gundam shows would just like be uncommonly really excellent. Um, but this is one of those where you point and it's like, yeah, look at this fucking thing. Look how good this score is. Absolutely. But the whole show. I mean, yeah. I said at the beginning, this is practically a perfect show. The more we talk about it, the more I love it. It's going to rank very highly, I think, when we do our overall rankings. It is, and it's a little hard to compare to other Gundam shows because it is a very different beast. But it is as good as I could imagine this kind of thing being. Frankly, it's better than I would imagine this kind of thing being. It is Uh better than, I knew I would probably like this because this sounds like the kind of thing that is very my shit. I liked it more than I thought I would. I loved it. It is it is a really tremendous show. Yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, there is a reason why they have like then this has like spawned its own sub franchise basically because it is just that good. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else to say about Gundam Build Fighters before we take a little break and start watching Build Fighters try? Yeah, so I guess like let's like let look forward ahead to the next uh, series. So so one thing I want to mention about Build Fighters Try because I want to set you up appropriately for this, Jonathan, because I think because I have you know because I I think I talked about it in the first episode of this uh, podcast that when I first watched Build Fighters Try, I did not like that show that much, and this will be the second time I've watched it. So I'm very interested to see how I feel watching it this time. But I think one of the reasons why I was disappointed by that show is I went in expecting it to be more of a direct sequel to Build Fighters than it actually is. So Build Fighters Try is set in the same universe, very definitively. It has some characters that do cross over, but don't go in expecting it to be a Zeta Gundam-esque, like you're not going to pick up any major threads with, say, Orodeji. They don't really factor into the show in almost any way at all. Um, and I think that I was very disappointed by that because I feel like the end of Build Fighters, you love those characters so much and you have, you're left with this promise of, I want to fight you, say, when you're even better. Um, and you're like, and then they make a sequel like one year later. Like if it's set in the same world, you get some crossover characters. Surely you must then have these characters factor in again in the Zeta Gundam-esque way. And they don't. So I think if you go in without having any of those expectations, um, uh, like you will, it should hopefully for me be able to like appreciate the show better, like on its own terms and less as like something that has to be an extension of Gundam Build Fighters. Because it is a, while it is a sequel, it is a bit of its own thing on top of that. I'm okay with that. I honestly, yeah. that's kind of what I was expecting. And from the end of this show, I don't need any more with, I love Saiyan Reiji, but like the ending to me isn't, I need to see what their fight will be. It's that I love that the potential exists and that's the right note to end on. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I would just assume, yeah, I you see new characters, have them fight more Gunpla. I'm good with that. Yeah. So, so again, next time we will watch Gun and Build Fighters try. And then the episode after that will be our big catch bag where we'll watch the GM's Counterattack, which is a sort of OVA sequel to Gundam Build Fighters. We'll also watch the Tri Island Wars, which is the OVA sequel to Gundam Build Fighters Tri. The Gundam Battle Log specials, which are like five 11 minute shorts, and the beginning G three minute or three part 40 minute OVA. So, like, all those little extra ones, if you're wondering like when you should be watching those, like, if you do, if you want to watch it along with us, wait for those. All of those will be in a third episode after we cover Try. The next episode will just be Gundam Build Fighters Try. So look forward to that. Next time on Weekly Suit Gundam.